Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. On today's show, film journalist Matt Perget. I remember one time, this is one of my only celebrity stories I will tell. I, I interviewed Alan Rickman one time in person, and I had just watched Die Hard in grad school, <laughs> as you do. And uh, I, I just like, oh, Mr. Rickman, I, I, we just studied uh, Die Hard in school, in grad school. And he's like, well, has a lot to answer for. <laughs> Like, I don't think he liked that movie very yeah. much. I think he enjoyed the role. His description of Hans Gerber is just like, to me, he is a very intelligent, driven man who has a plan and he unfortunately fails. <laughs> this is a great way of talking about Hans Gruber, one of the greatest <laughs> villains in screen history, I think. Greetings and welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. Here we have conversations with artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. We can be found along with past episodes at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher under Fun to Know Podcast, always with the numeral two. You can find photos and more about our guests on the Fun to Know Podcast pages on Facebook and at Twitter, and would be delighted if you could take a minute to leave a review of our show on iTunes or any of the platforms, or just send me a note with your thoughts through Facebook. Thanks again for listening. Again, a quick announcement before today's show. Starting February 15th, I'll be the instructor of a new class at Fleischer Arts Memorial in Philly. Over five Thursdays, we'll be looking at some of the great works by women film directors in a class called 50 Years of Women Directors. We'll see films from Agnes Varda, Claudia Vile, Julie Dash, Catherine Bria, and Lucretia Martel. And we'll have guest speakers including longtime Philadelphia Inquirer critic Carrie Rickey and writer and co-host of the Daughters of Darkness podcast, Sam Dane. It's an intriguing batch of films. I invite you to check out more about the class at Fleischer.org. That's F-L-E-I-S-H-E-R dot O-R-G. Now on to today's show with our guest, Matt Perget. Matt has written about films since the late 1990s, originally where I first met him at the Philadelphia Weekly, and then for four years as the film editor at the Metro, the free commuter paper that has editions in New York City, Boston, and Philadelphia. Matt is a particularly engaging writer with an unusually firm grasp on a wide range of cinema, finding what is worth celebrating in low-grade action films to finessing the metaphors of the work of Lars von Trier. We get rolling on a tangent-rich conversation, but also chart and mourn the decline of the independent weekly newspapers that served the variety of cultural functions for city dwellers until the new millennium when many of their services could be transferred easily to the Internet. Across the country, those papers have withered and died since the Internet's rise and lost as the paper's role as a magnet that brought journalists and artists under one roof to share energy and ideas. Along the way, we also discuss growing up in Mechanicsburg, PA, Indian filmmaker Satajit Ray, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Richard Lester and the Beatles' Help, Fellini meets Michael Jackson, Stanley Donan, Woody Allen, the cinema of Callista Flockhart, the politics of Die Hard, The Archers, Pal and Pressburger, the late films of Billy Wilder, John Huston, The Key to Tarantino, the late Alan Rickman, Listicles, Smokey and the Bandit, writing about the Marvel Universe, Twin Peaks The Return, Steven Soderbergh, Frederick Wiseman, and Matt's new job teaching at NYU. It was the first time we'd been in the same room for at least five years. Let's head over now and hear two film lovers really get into it.
I'm here as the uh, the sun is going down on this Sunday afternoon with Matt Perjay, New York film critic, who uh, we worked together years ago at the Philadelphia uh, Weekly. The, <laughs> remember that paper? Yes, a, a free <laughs> weekly back in the free weekly era, which seemed like it was going to stretch on forever at one mm. point. And uh, uh, I've, I've sort of, uh, in, in low gear, continued to write about film over the years, mostly at Fokker.com. But Matt, is, uh, he really... Uh, you know, went the high road, and he went to New York and and uh, studied and got a degree in film. And he has uh, camped out of Brooklyn. He was uh, for a long time the film editor of the Metro, which uh, I remember when I was first introduced to the Metro. Uh, I it seemed more like. I was thinking of, a, of one of those free neighborhood papers that comes out once a week. But as the weeklies, uh, you know, sort of deteriorated, uh, the Metro became a pretty solid news source uh, day in and day out as a daily. And the entertainment section that they had was really first rate and uh, far outperformed uh, most of the old time daily papers that uh, are at cities around the country. I've been very impressed with uh, your writing for, for what that's worth. But it really is... Uh, Reminds me of, of the reputation Roger Ebert had and, and, and maybe deserved of being somebody who his interest went the gamut between, you know, highbrow art films to uh, someone who took seriously all sorts of genre filmmaking and commercial filmmaking and wrote about it. And uh, and Matt, Matt writes about it with with, with such, uh, what do you say, uh, an, an uncynical eye for someone who's seen uh, almost everything, I feel. And somebody who really gives, you know, gives each film its, its due and been delighted to read his work over the last decade or, or more. And uh, it's interesting as uh, time at the Metro has ended, but I've seen your byline other places, The Village Voice and uh, other outlets, and I, I couldn't be more excited to have you here to talk about uh, your career in film writing, your interest in film over the years, and any other sort of film matters. Welcome to uh, the Fun to Know Podcast Center here at the <laughs> Kitchen Table Studios. Um, thank you for having me and for that uh, amazing introduction, uh, some of which I hope I live up to in some way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sh- I'm sure that won't be a problem. Um, where, you you grew up uh, out in in the the state of Pennsylvania here, didn't you? I was technically born just outside of Philadelphia, but I grew up in the Harrisburg area in a place called Mechanicsburg, which is semi-famous for being mentioned on The Simpsons ah. randomly, and I don't know why or if they're actually referring to Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, which is where I lived. <laughs> but yeah, it was like it was central Pennsylvania, and you know, uh, it's James Carville has that line about. Pennsylvania being Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and Alabama in the middle. And that's not totally wrong, but I lived in the part that was like unaccountably sort of bluish. It was Uh sort of like a mix, I think. It was very, I mean, it's Trump country now, but I mean, you know, it was a little politically more diverse. Yeah. Not incredibly diverse, but you could have like, you could grow up and become a cool liberal as in high school or something aren't like there that. aren't there some some uh, colleges and universities out in that area somewhere yeah yeah there's like dickinson college and a couple other penn state um yeah there's like dickinson is out there in carlisle and you know, that's a pretty pretty progressive lefty place unless it isn't and i'm completely wrong I'm just mess remembering it but yeah there's a there's a number of universities out that way so yeah. there's some kind of like forward thinking going on out there and a little bit of intellectual culture and couple art house theaters you know when did you first get interested in in uh, films as a kid i was really really young and i don't actually remember never not really being into movies i don't have a good answer for like why i got really into movies it just sort of happened um i can't even remember i mean i remember seeing return of the jedi so it was like part of that generation but movies were just like always like my favorite medium 
and I don't I should probably see a therapist and talk about this at great length and spend a lot of money on that and find out why I was so drawn to movies but well, it, what what films do you remember really sticking with you I mean uh, uh, there's for me there's a little list when I was you know seven or eight and already sort of deep into it of you know young Frankenstein and Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid I mean this would probably be you know maybe a generation before you but what were what were the preteen uh, loves of, of Matt Perget, uh future film critic Police academies one through six, definitely. I, I, I watch a lot of like crappy things. I mean, but I, I grew up in like Spielberg, and you know, I watched like all those Spielberg movies came out when I was a kid. E.T. was a huge for me, and the Star Wars films were really huge for me. And you know, those films, I mean, you come up from that generation. I mean, that, that period of movies, of Hollywood blockbuster films are, you know, that's what I grew up on. And they were very kid-friendly, so many of them, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or like, I mean, the, the Goonies was a big film for me. The Goonies and, and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, which is like, uh, it, it, I, it's re- that's a really hard film for me to defend, apart uh-huh. from like nostalgic reasons. I was actually reading, um, I'm reading this book on, I'm going to pronounce this correctly, Shodojit Rai. The otherwise known as Satyajit Ray, the Indian, Indian Bengali filmmaker. Yes. Uh, reading a book about, talking about poet of the working class. Poet, yeah. yeah, one of the great poets of the working class. And uh, he was talking about like in the eighties, he was in London showing his new movie, Home of Home of the World. I think it was whatever it's called. Uh-huh. Um, and he wound up. He didn't want to go see the film. He had gotten like really sick at the very end of making it, and his son had to like do the directing of it. But long story short, he was in London and he didn't want to go see the movie. So they all went to go see Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And you have, like, the greatest Indian filmmaker of all time going to see this movie, which, like, portrays, like, South Asia in, like, the most casually racist way possible. Like, I don't think it's Steven Spielberg's, like, an active racist. I think it's just, like, of a casual, I grew up in middle America. There was and... no downside at that point of uh, having that portrayal on screen. No, and you have an entire 10-minute long dinner scene where, they're like, they're eating brains and snakes, and oh my god, this is, that's what people in this part of the world <laughs> think is good cuisine. And just imagining, like, Shotojit Rai sitting yeah. there watching this. Anyway, his quote was that he thought the first 10 minutes were very good, which they are, and then the rest of it was just garbage. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other funny part of the story is that Shodojit Rai in the 60s was trying to make, he almost worked in Hollywood and he almost made a sci-fi film. Oh, and no. it, it fell apart at the last second and I forget why. It's a really convoluted, very almost funny story. Um, but it turns out that the plot elements sound an awful lot like E.T. So oh, wow. maybe <laughs> Kathleen Kennedy, is that her name? Yeah. Yeah, she, or, or uh, Matheson, Melissa Matheson probably like, poached Shadujit Rai's <laughs> idea for a sci-fi film and it became E.T. It would figure. It would. Uh, anyway, it's a long, yeah, I, a both, side light. On both those sides, uh, 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 Sarajit Rai, uh, he... Uh, uh, when they released the nine uh, reissued films that came out, uh, I was in San Francisco and they came each week to my local theater. And uh, that was the first time I saw the, you know, Pather Pashali and the Apu trilogy. But beyond that, uh, the music lovers and Devi and stuff, really, yeah. you know, blown away by that. And also Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. That was my first, <laughs> uh, my first day working at a local movie theater in town. I quit the Burger King and worked at the movie theater. And I went in early and got my, uh, my usher's uh, blue j- jacket for the GCC theater, and I saw Indiana Jones: The Temple of Doom, and loved it. And then uh, came out and faced a horde of uh, hungry 
popcorn savvy people to, to wait on on my first day of the of work. So anyway, so you discover Shotojit Rai and like Temple of Doom around the same time. Uh, well, no, these were uh, this happened twenty years apart, probably. But, oh, okay, okay, uh, okay, but, okay, but, okay. but both films, uh, both uh, you know, major memories for me as a, as a film goer. And I really felt like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I really learned something because I did love that first screening. Then I went back at midnight after I was able to close out at the at the, uh, at the theater and seeing it a second time. I realized. Oh, there's no what's something's really missing for me here, and there's so there's no emotional journey of Indiana Jones. He's the same guy from the beginning to the end, and watching him like fall through like a like you know that board game mouse trap. Watching him fall through a trap is fun once, but yeah. a second time, it's really wasn't that fun anymore. It's I mean it's a very hard film for me to defend. I have very strong nostalgic things. I love reading stories about the making of it because like George Lucas and Spielberg were both going through nasty nasty divorces. Especially I think it was George Lucas's first. First divorce and he's like very you know midwestern and very innocent and just like oh my god i thought that love was forever and so they were the yeah. long story short they were in horrible psychological places they were terrible <laughs> emotional states to the point where lawrence kasdan um decided like you know he wrote the first raiders of the lost ark when he got into like the room with miserable george lucas and miserable steven spielberg he's just like i can't be here this is bad wow. and so he like got out of there and that's why the movie is about like children being kidnapped on mass and put to work in slave labor in mines and bugs everywhere it's an unusually like, sadistic woman. film uh, hearts the being removing the heart ripped yeah. heart out by oh my god it's brutal yeah. and a horrible shrill performance by kate capshaw is she's the, terrible uh, yeah she's no karen allen She's definitely no Karen Allen. And funny, I this is a long story why I did this, but I read the novelization for Temple of Doom. I, at one point, I wanted to start a blog where I read novelizations back when blogs were really popular. Yeah. And um, I never got very far in it. But I read Temple of Doom. I think it was the only one I read. And her character in the book is much more hard. She's hard-boiled. She's been around the block. She... She knows she's seen it all, and she's weathered it and become tough on the inside. <laughs> and then you know, because like novelizations are usually from like earlier drafts of a screenplay, and so apparently over successive drafts, she just became an idiot who screams and is tortured by bugs, and yeah. uh, she's an idiot. It's very sad. And then played by you know the then future Mrs. Steven Spielberg. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a, there's a career that uh, she sort of disappeared as his wife, and was not around that much as an actress really for yeah the nineties. Maybe she's a really great actress now. I mean, you know. She was in The Locust was the last thing I sort of remember her the being. Locust. The Locust? Vince uh, Vaughn? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's the, the femme fatale, I believe. Was that. she good in it? I, I, it's, uh, I, she didn't make much of an impression, let me say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I won't exactly hold out for, you know, the autumnal years of Kate Capshaw. She grows into a great actress or something like that. This, this is bound to be a conversation with a few, uh, with a few, uh, tangents. Tangents, <laughs> thank you. Tangents is the word I was looking for. Yeah. But yeah. I'm going to steer you back to, I, I okay. want to hear more about young Matt Perget and, and, sure. uh, what, what, what captured you about cinema beyond, you know the sort of standard fare. Where was there when there was something that hinted at a, a, the world of cinema being larger than just blockbusters and Spielberg? Um, you know, actually, like one of the first films I saw. I mean, my mom would occasionally try to make me watch older movies, and I was just not happy. And she made me watch like Doctor Zhivago, and I was just like so bored. I was it was like ten years old. I mean, and it's not necessarily the best film to pull a, pull a kid into film culture with. Yeah, not exactly. Like a three hour long <laughs> Russian history. Like, <laughs> 
Yeah, I, w- I wasn't really taking to that, but I actually think like I would probably pinpoint like the sort of like turning point being around like first off like uh, Richard Lester Beatles movies. Weirdly enough, yeah. um, I didn't, I couldn't get into Hard Day's Night when I was like ten or eleven for whatever reason. But I was really. Black and in, white. I'm sorry. Black and white that holds some people back. Um. Yeah. I mean, I liked Young Frankenstein, so uh-huh. that was that was good. Okay. Um, that was probably like my first black and white film, <laughs> to be honest. But it was actually like Help. I loved Help, and I continue to like Help. It's one of the few things that I loved when I was younger that I'm not embarrassed that I never turned on. There's a number of things that I loved as a kid that I turned on, and some of the times I've come back to them, like the '80s solo work of Phil Collins and uh-huh. uh, '80s Genesis is something I've come back on. But it, it wasn't like the Indiana Jones Temple of Doom and Help thing where you really needed very stereotypical Indian characters to enjoy a film. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, they both share that quality, yeah. <laughs> Help's a little better because it's like much more tongue-in-cheek and yeah. kind of yeah. self-aware <laughs> about it. But yeah, it, it has that. But, but it, 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 gorgeously shot. I mean, you yeah, look at the day, an, an amazingly shot film. Um, Steven uh, Soderbergh actually pinpoints Help as like one of the first true modern color films. And getting away from like kind of like the three-strip technicolor into like abstract color lighting i think like the uh, you're gonna lose that girl sequence which has they're this, like, filmed fog. in the studio is that yeah they're in the studio and it's like all these like very strange shots it's just like they're out of focus and there's all this fog and you can't see the faces but there's these great like color backlights it's really kind of amazing looking yeah, yeah. um but i mean the, the, i don't i don't know why i think the help is like this like you know intellectual film or something like that but it was like a film that was like outside of what i considered mainstream culture like the kind of movies i would watch and i really appreciated that and i think also kind of like understanding a more kind of like auteur kind of driven thing because it's a very kind of directed film and a very written film and yeah. beyond the beatles it's not just like it draws attention to form it draws attention to form so that may be like the first time i thought a little bit more about form and it also introduced me to like that style of comedy which i think is like pre-monty python in a lot of yeah. ways so i think like richard lester i don't want to say he created monty python or anything but he introduced a, a kind of absurdist style of, of humor that monty python would kind of like build on and and make better honestly they all harken back to something i'm not that familiar with and that's the the goon show and spike milligan yeah 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 they all seem to seem to name check uh, his work i I think in the 50s that that really uh, was an inspiration to that antic surrealist british humor and richard lester was part of like you know the goon squad like he was the director who did like the tv episodes and stuff like that he was involved with all those guys his like first short film which is like the running jumping and standing still film is all Goon Show guys, Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers. So yeah. he was born out of that and taking it into like the mainstream and getting you know the most popular rock band in a, in the world to have this like Goon Show style sense of humor, which is completely beyond the Beatles because they're just stoned out of their minds that entire movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny somebody like him like my my interest in him was really predated. Uh, the internet and all that sort of thing it all was you know cobbled together from books and chapters out of things and magazine articles and it was only later when I, that I realized that he, he wasn't British Richard Lester he was he's actually from Philadelphia, from Philadelphia. Yeah. yeah he is one of those cool because he's lived in London for most of or England for most of his life so he has this like cool like somewhere between American and somewhere and British kind of accent whereas some words have a British accent and some of them are very American so yeah it's very strange. And without being like the mid, uh, mid-Atlantic mid accent, which is what you hear with like, uh, you know, uh, Gore Vidal and those guys.
you were talking about the the Beatles help. Yeah. Were you a music fan at that time too? Yeah, I liked music a lot. I mean, I, the Beatles were like probably the first band. This this is how like kind of like sheltered and Pennsylvania and my upbringing was. Is that I the Beatles were the first band I was seriously like listened to, and this was like in high school, like early high school, and I bought all their albums and followed because they're it's a very exciting discography because it's like in you know eight years and they changed dramatically in every album yeah change music with every single album and it's kind of amazing and uh, the, if you just concentrated only on the visual element uh, those albums uh, you know as visual photo albums are, are, are fascinating in their own you know? yeah i mean and they're one of the great bands in terms of like you know i'm praising the beatles i know but <laughs> I mean, they're one of the first bands that really kind of like take the the visual thing as well i mean they were really into movies and they had great directors and they you know they made magical mystery tour themselves and then there's Yellow Submarine. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are a few bands have actually like crossed over into like that medium successfully. Yeah. I think, and we can go all the way to their production of Holy Mountain with uh, yeah John Lennon and Yoko you know, giving the money for Jodorowsky. Yeah, they were they yeah. were it was definitely to be taken seriously as uh, you know pop and uh, artistic thinkers of the century. Of course, yeah, they were great when they thought about that stuff. I mean, yeah. when they have and especially I mean like Richard Lester, I think is actually one of the great directors. And, he was someone I, I actually came back to in like in undergrad when I was in film school at Temple University in Philadelphia. Uh, <laughs> towards the end of there, I got really into Richard Lester. I think I saw the knack and how to get it, and sure. that like blew my mind. Because apart, you know, he he was he come up with the Goon Show and everything, but he wasn't just a comic director. He was actually a visual comic director. He thought in terms of like visuals and editing, and like sometimes that was funnier than the people who were in the film. Like the knack stars Michael Crawford, and he's just like bumbling and pratfalling and he's brilliant at it by the way because we always think of him as the fan of the opera but like in the knack he's just this like i don't know he's very nervous and he just pratfalls better than almost anybody in screen who's really? the woman who he's pursuing in that rita film? tushingham rita tushingham yeah. is you know cornerstone starlet of the uh, the 60s and kitchen uh, sink realism of the early 60s. yeah yeah and she had that look that seemed to live forever the sort of like mod girl look mm. in that film with that little cap that she wears and everything that yeah there's something about that film that really uh, still <laughs> maintains a real charm yeah i mean it's like a swinging i think it was, it was kind of lumped in with like the swinging 60s london stuff but it's like a critique of it as well i mean it's extremely detached from it and just amused by it yeah um i mean it did win like the equivalent of the palm d'or back in 1965 Cannes film festival but I mean, it, it has a, a, an energy I've never really seen in the movie before. You know, like just thinking uh, visually in terms of comedy, yeah. which is like you really see. There's very few directors apart from like Jacques Tati, and a couple others who are or Blake Edwards who are just great in terms of like visual comedy, yeah. like not just like knowing how to like photograph and time comedy, but like how the visuals actually become part of the comedy itself. Um, and then there's so many great editing tricks, and he's borrowing a lot from like the French New Wave, and like, or like Alain Rene. There's a bit of Alain Rene in um, in The Knack, yeah. and a couple of his other films. But he's using he's like twisting Alain Rene editing techniques for comedy, um, which is uh, almost no one really does that. It's a really incredible film, I think, to this day. Yeah, did he, he did he do the Bedsitter Room as well? Yes, he did. Bedsitter Room, which is crazy, and like destroyed his career about for about four years. <laughs> I mean, and that really is like the sort of the experimentalism of the '60s, really, you know, mm. full, you know, full throttle, and with his sort of uh, you know visual vision and stuff. Yeah, I and mean, it's uh, it's very strange, like co like sensibility, comic sensibility, where it's almost alienating to watch. Yeah. Like some of it's, I mean, he has all these like great comic people in it, like you know, Dudley Moore and Peter Cook and 
who else? Michael Hordern, all those guys. And, like, they're all really funny, and it's Spike Milligan. But, I mean, like, the, the pacing of the film and, like, the, the almost detached, not quite cynical kind of, like, look on humanity is just, like, it's almost unwatchable in some kind of way. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, like, United Artists, like, cut him a blank check, said, like, make whatever you want, you know? And then he's like, okay, this is what I'm interested in. And then it bombed spectacularly and wasn't really talked about for about 20, 30 years. But. Yeah, it was hard to see. I, I remember catching it late at night on television, uh, on a, you know, an edited sort of TV viewing, mm-hmm. and, you know, not knowing what to make of it as, a, as a somebody <laughs> in my 20s. I mean, the first time I saw it, I had actually written this article for the Philadelphia Weekly about, like, apocalyptic or dystopian movies. And I put that on there without having seen it, and I was like, I think I wrote, like, if anyone has a copy, let me know. <laughs> and the day it was published, I got a phone call from uh, this guy, this very polite gentleman in Philadelphia. He says, if you want to come by my my place, I can give you a copy of it. And it was, like, a little apprehensive. <laughs> and I went there, and he, like, met me in the lobby, and he's like, here's a VHS stub. You can just keep it. You don't have to return it. And I still have it somewhere. Wow. That was my introduction to the bed-sitting room. And it didn't let down. It wasn't a letdown at all. It was a really insane, crazy movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, very, very much of its time. Like, back to that experimentalism that was going on in the 60s. Like, Richard Lester was really taking advantage of that. Yeah. Another film from that era, which I think was a an early discovery for me, I think still as a teen, was uh, bedazzled with uh, oh, Peter God. Cook yeah. and oh, Dudley God. Moore. And, and Stanley and, Donan. Yeah, yeah. And that seemed like the most British of films, and yet it was an American director who uh, who directed that as well. But yeah. uh, but uh, yeah, that was a, uh, an incredible satire of you know Philadelphia or Philadelphia of, <laughs> of, of British society from the, you know top to bottom, and uh, uh, you know a fascinating work that seemed to you know uh, be part of that same world. And another film that's like very visually, editorially, is like very revolutionary and using editing and visuals for comedy. I think like Stanley Donen's really great because like you know he comes up, you know, through Gene Kelly does like all these like beautiful widescreen, uh, long take musicals where you know like Seven Brides for Seven Brothers where it's very kind of like uh, traditionally formal, uh, or if that's even the term. But then in the '60s, it becomes like really radical. Like he, all of his movies like around like arabesque and uh, and uh, what's it called two for the two road. for the road yeah those yeah. are just some of the most like radical editorially films of the, that era and they're studio films it's really incredible yeah and I guess he's still with us Stanley Donen I believe he's still with us. yeah and I, I when he got his honorary Academy Award. 15 years ago or something he, he was like danced. I want to work yeah like look I, I can still dance you know I can I can direct your movie but uh, I would love to see a Stanley I, he's probably like 90 something years old yeah, I would yeah. love to see like a Stanley Donor movie come out next year that would be amazing like, I heard Billy Wilder all the way to the end like at an office downtown where he went every day and was you know hoping to, to get a movie made again at some point oh my god I can imagine I, yeah. I mean in the 80s I think when you see like him embrace the R rating and movies like Avanti yeah, yeah oh it's incredible I've never seen Fedora although I should probably see that. I have the laser disc of Fedora <laughs> and uh, it, it's a it's a film I hate to praise too highly but it, it's a really fascinating film and it is sort of his um uh, sort of uh, you know 50 psychological noir like it feels like it shouldn't be a color film at all but uh, yeah it's a, it's a, certainly another uh, you know juicy morsel from his long filmography you know yeah and I, I even think his movie of the front page he made in the 70s it's like kind of like a throwback in some kind of way but then embracing a lot of like parts of like the culture that's going on like it's easy to say like oh it's I'm just making an old-fashioned type of movie in the 70s but I think like he for one thing he 
keeps it's the first the only movie that has the final line in the play which is like some of a bitch told my watch mm-hmm. and it keeps all like the racial like there's racial and sexist epithets and they're really you're supposed to understand that these guys are actually like dark and kind of <laughs> fucked up um he like he retains all of that stuff yeah i mean often the sort of you know hollywood sheen that sort of came with him like uh, glossed over how dark his characters were and how, <laughs> how, how how you know odd and sadistic the whole thing was i i just saw um the one that's based on a, on a, an Italian film, um, where the guy tries to get his wife to sleep with the movie star who's kind oh, of oh, kiss him. me stupid, kiss me stupid. That's yeah. such a dark film. Yeah. I mean, all his films are really dark. I mean, even even like the fluffy ones have dark elements to them. Absolutely, like, he's one of yeah. the, the most sour, entertainingly sour <laughs> filmmakers. It's kind of weird because I feel like I discovered him. I really kind of like got deep into like the Billy Wilder filmography back in like the late nineties. Um, and I feel like he's kind of fallen a little bit out of favor. Like no one really talks about him that much. Um, you know, I even was listening to a podcast. Karina Longworth has an amazing podcast called, you must remember this, which I'm sure sure everybody in the world listens to because it's amazing. And she was like, you know, she's doing a thing about Marilyn Monroe. And so she went back and watched some like hot, um, through the lens of Marilyn Monroe and what she was actually going through and how like they kind of dumbed the character down a little bit and didn't allow her to like really kind of try very hard so she wasn't allowed to so there's a she found a melancholy to the performance yeah. um, I'm not sure what the point of me talking about that was apart from like it seems like even like some like a hot is like we're, we're, we're we feel comfortable like you know saying it's maybe not that good uh-huh. perhaps and in this case fairly so I should, I, I should I, abandon this. Point I would, yeah, I would, I would certainly derail that. My, my appreciation for some <laughs> like it hot, which I loved since I was a kid. And, and I, I really, that was where I fell in love with Marilyn Monroe is like a 10 hmm. year old. You're not even sure exactly what is pulling you towards her so much. <laughs> um, but I, I had a newfound appreciation showing it. I, I uh, worked for quite a few years showing films to mainly like junior high school and middle school kids. Mm-hmm. And seeing that film really go over with kids over and over again, really made me appreciate all the things that really sort of work about the film and mm-hmm. and when you see something that really bridges generations like that he's sort of, you know certain films I really took a newfound respect for because I could you know I saw 14 year old kids crack up at them you know I mean speaking of formative films for my own life I mean that was actually one of them I probably saw when I was like 14 or so and I wasn't really watching a lot of like old movies at that point I was at that drama camp yeah, <laughs> when yeah. I was like very young and they had like a movie night and like they had they, they would show like kind of like modern films every now and then but like one night they took a chance for like, we're going to show an old movie and they showed some like it hot and this entire I mean it was like drama nerds so yeah, it, it was yeah. bound to kind of go over at least a little well but it it like slayed like the entire <laughs> we all the entire audience just fell in love with this movie instantly. Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, the, right up to the final line, that was like all we could talk about like for the rest of drama camp was <laughs> Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot. So There was one kid whose question was, as we got into the film, was... Uh... Uh, wasn't she? Wasn't she supposed to be like the hottest woman of her time, Marilyn Monroe? And I said, yeah, that kind of is, uh, you know, what her reputation is. And uh, Andrew was over as he was walking out. I said, do you, do you understand why she was considered the hottest woman of her time? And he got kind of nervous. Went, yeah. And then uh, <laughs> at the end of the week, his mother told me, "Some Like It Hot" is now his favorite film. 
wow. <laughs> hey, whatever gets the kids to watch something. And he hot. was really into Mary. His mom admitted like he was really into Marilyn Monroe. He was somehow she <laughs> still cast a spell, you know, like fifty years later from that film or whatever. She's amazing in it. She's yeah. always amazing and yeah. she's capable of so much more. I think like the misfits, she's really good in the misfits for yeah. one thing. And the misfits, watching that again recently, like not everybody has the stomach for such an existentially bleak film as the misfits. There's really not much to compare it to from that that era it's uh yeah yeah i mean yeah it's, it's way ahead of its time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that it managed to get me at it all it's just pretty amazing yeah so. yeah being a big uh, montgomery cliff fan there's a there's a lot of uh, yeah like a traffic pile up there's a lot of like psychic you know pain all around on that film oh my God, it's true <laughs> someone was talking recently i think they're showing the metrograph which is one of the repertory theaters in new york they're showing um freud by john houston starting Favorite montgomery mind. cliff because yeah, yeah. i think i think it's actually being presented by rachel weiss and she's like I think so. Um, and she was talking about how like Montgomery Cliff's performance in Freud is so incredible, and no one talks about that movie to this day. No, that's another film. Really, had disappeared. If I hadn't had recorded it off Cinemax in the nineties, I don't think <laughs> I wouldn't have a copy. But I recently got there's a foreign release of it that I got, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a, that is a really fascinating film. And talk about somebody who's out of favor. I think even more so than Billy Wilder, John Huston. You don't hear too many people taking his career <laughs> seriously and going through that. And uh, yeah. I, I think there's a lot there. You know, even. Uh, 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 films that that have mixed reputations like Moby Dick and everything. I, I think there's still <laughs> incredible productions that have been mounted, you know, that are are worth digesting and then uh, getting to know Houston. Well, I mean, he I maybe mean, he felt a favorite because he's not really like the auteur that the people really like, which is to say, like an artist with a yeah. personal vision. He's sort of like. Um, kind of like a workhorse and also like he adapted to all these different kinds of genres and tried all these different things and always and, with a lot of intelligence I mean, oh yeah. yeah yeah. I mean and he would try really weird things like Reflections on a Golden Eye as one of the weirdest Hollywood films ever made especially if you yeah. see it in the original intended version which is like this like golden palette that's like shot through like a filter or something like that um, it looks really weird. It's like not a color film, really. It's like all gold and it's like a golden black film. Yeah, bizarre yeah. looking, and really great. So I, I, John Huston's like one of those guys where I feel like he contains multitudes. And if you went back to like certain portions of his filmography, uh, you will find some of like the strangest and most interesting experiments with like Hollywood filmmaking out there. Uh, they were. St- they Were Strangers, I think is the title of it. We Were Strangers. Um, I haven't seen that one. That yeah. one is a shocking one. And that is uh, John Garfield. Hmm. And uh, and uh, I believe um, Ida Lupino. I, I could be wrong. But that is one of the only pro-terrorist films I can think of. <laughs> that is about terrorists who are digging a hole under the... Um, uh, the uh, the political body in Cuba and pre Castro Cuba and they're going to you know blow up the Congress and they're the good guys in the in the peace. Uh, <laughs> it's a film that's really been lost, but uh, that's a, oh it's 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 not a Lupino. It's um uh, Sal's next wife Jennifer. Uh, oh Jennifer Jones. Jennifer Jones. Yeah yeah, yeah. A, a stunning forgotten and it's a film I'm sure a lot of people just don't know what to make of but uh, you know, sure. an interesting quarter of John Huston's film and I've always heard the Red Badge of Courage you know was probably one of his great films which I, I don't think it's uh, I think it's only available in a, a version that has missing 40 minutes or so oh really yeah oh, is that why it's like 73 minutes long yeah okay. yeah but but it was supposedly one of his he thought it was his great artistic statement at the time and everything but yeah. I don't know if we'll ever say a restored red badge of courage uh, tune into a future podcast for the fate of uh, 
<laughs> of that, I'm sure. Was that like early 50s, like 51, I think Yeah, yeah, I yeah. so. I mean, yeah. all the stuff, I mean, if you read that Mark Harris book that he wrote, like Five Came Back, oh. about like, you know, John Ford and William Wyler and John Huston and then Frank Capra and one other unforgettable great filmmaker, legend. Um oh, it wasn't Howard Hawks. It was someone else but along those lines. But it's like they all went off to like you know shoot propaganda films during World War II oh, and yeah. came back. But all the John Huston stories are just crazy. Like him, there's like the great story about when he came back and he was just traumatized by what he had seen at war. And he would he, he took up in a hotel right off of Central Park and he would go out at night with a loaded gun, walking through Central Park at night, just hoping that someone would pick a fight with him so he could kill them. Yeah. Like he just lost his mind. Yeah. So yeah. Crazy. Um, <laughs> not sure how this ties into my yes. formative years. I'm well, not sure what I discovered. I'm going to loop it around because you yeah, said Richard Lester was your, your sort of a college discovery. You went to, to went through the, uh, the 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 film program at, at Temple University here in mm-hmm. Philadelphia. What was your experience? Uh, well, it was kind of it was strange because I think I, I I came to uh, to film school in like the, the the Pulp Fiction wave. Like Pulp Fiction was the film that like that was the big huge film that made me actually want to become like a filmmaker. I would like write terrible screenplays which I actually found because my parents were moving out of my childhood home and I had to go through and like throw out a bunch of stuff and I found all these old scripts that I, and I would read them and just be like oh my god this is terrible <laughs> was, a very Tarantino influence I mean he was you know quite the dominant influence in, the, in those years well yeah he was a huge influence because like you know A he was like writing about like crime and like he was, everybody was really talkative and things like that but it was also like he he was great in terms of like hipping you to like cool old movies like that was how I got into like you know the French New Wave and even like Fellini and then Howard Hawks I mean I think I watched Bringing Up Baby because he name dropped it on the yeah. episode uh, of Charlie Rose that he was on right after Pulp Fiction came out yeah so, it's on the Laserdisc box set that interview actually. yeah that's on yeah it's on my Pulp Fiction DVD as well I, I rewatched <laughs> it he's really great I mean he was really inspiring because like he made you want to become a filmmaker and also made you want to become like a big cinephile oh that's I mean, that's exhibit A, sort of, of my my uh, generational disappointment, I think, with Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> uh, my, my connection, too. I just It's funny. I just watched Reservoir Dogs for the first time in maybe 20 years yesterday. Mm-hmm. But um, I was working in a very... Uh, uh, a very uh, highbrow video store in San Francisco at the time. And so hearing down in L.A., the guy from the highbrow, you know, video store down there was making a movie. You know, there was something aspirational about that story. And when he and I remember that, that, that Charlie Rose interview and him sort of, you know, really discussing the whole uh, history of, of cinema and, and how inspired he was by it all. Mm-hmm. I really thought that he was going to be a different filmmaker than he sort of turned out to be. Hmm. I didn't think that meant he was, you know, bound to make, you know, three and a half hour sort of genre remakes I really thought he was he was he was aiming to be maybe the Truffaut of his generation as much as the you know uh, uh, Arch Hall Jr. or whatever <laughs> that's a little too mean but uh, I, I, I I expected something more expansive and, and I and I wonder whether the sort of level of stardom he got might have thwarted his uh, progress as a as an artist I mean, possibly I always thought that he would like stay in like some kind of like general generic crime thriller kind of thing which has kind of like been all he's done I mean like Jackie Brown's still a romance on top of being you know a crime movie yeah. so it's almost like more of a romance than it is a crime maybe, film maybe so. like a lot of people I think maybe is best I don't know some people really say that I am a big Glorious Bastards fan oh, so if I agree with the final line in the movie this might be my masterpiece I uh-huh. kind of think it is <laughs> I wrote it it's, I, I kind of like that one actually oh it's great because it rewrites history it's all about you know like the it's, a, it's a, all about cinema really about how film can change the you know as our fantasies that we yeah. can actually achieve in real life and so 
I have one correction I would make to that film, which I really am bold enough to say would really make it better. And, and <laughs> if they took out that whole scene in the in the bar with Michael Fassbender, it oh, sort of drags everything to a, to a... Oh, I love that scene. To me, it, it would really move along more like those sort of genre films he so much likes that are 87 minutes. Uh, the fact that he... That he sort of you know seems to worship those films, and yet all of his films are you know two hours and twenty minutes, <laughs> is uh, is a frustration with me as a as a oh I, I a think, fan I think that's a great thing about him because I think like he's also he, he's not really slavishly recreating like an old genre thing because that would just be nostalgic. He's like kind of reinventing it. Uh-huh. Like I think that one of my favorite ones is Death Proof, which no one liked when it came out, and I think yeah. even he is disowned and he's wrong because uh-huh. that movie is amazing. But um, you know, it's it's not a genre. It's, it's in the form of a genre film, but like the structure of it is very strange. It's divided in half, and like one is like you know, Kurt Russell is successful in murdering a bunch of women, and the other one, you know, the women are successful in like destroying him instead. Yeah. And someone described it as like the double life of Veronique of genre <laughs> movies, and I think that's kind of the way to read it because the people were kind of pissed off when it came out because it was, you know, it was distributed as the Grindhouse movie called Grindhouse. Yeah. With two films that weren't really all that grindhousey, even the Robert Rodriguez one is nowhere near as sleazy as any of the films it's aspiring to be. But he's going off in this bizarre experiment, which yeah. I think all of his films are. I don't feel like I wouldn't really like him if he did like genre straight up genre recreation. Well, how do you were, feel like, about minutes. Reservoir Dogs? I mean, like I said, it's I went back and so long and I saw that. that. Like watching that, like oh, this is really punchy and and, and gets out while you're still. Wanting more uh, yeah. in a way, and and uh, for 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 the um, uh, death the uh, death uh, the grindhouse one. Oh, it's the title of Death Car. Death, death proof. Death proof. Death car's good too. That would be a great title. <laughs> it really felt like, in a way, like that was his most autobiographical film. I, I thought that the uh, the guy who was sitting in the bar boring, uh, you know, uh, girls with. Uh, with his uh, knowledge of you know his history and old cinema and yeah. stuff, that seemed really like Quentin Tarantino and the the, the anger he had at the women for not being interested. <laughs> it really, to me, hinted at something very dark in his character. There's a lot of if that's true, and it might very much be true. That's it's a self critique. That's really I mean, wouldn't his dark. fantasy be to be Kurt Russell? You know, like, yeah, it's like one of his yeah. favorite actors too. Yeah. And and but I mean, the movie like he's the villain of the movie, and yeah, yeah. he and it's cry like, for help that film. It's a cry for help about maybe demons we don't really know about in Tarantino and like because he's really winds up being extremely cruel to you know if that's if Kurt Russell's character is Quentin Tarantino's stand-in he's being extremely really really brutal to himself the the one piece of his career that I really wish I could I could have experienced that that for me maybe the hidden key of Quentin Tarantino I wish I would have seen his performance and wait wait until dark on on stage oh my god that's right was it Marissa Tomei Tomei, I think Marissa Tomei and I forgot who else was in it who was playing the uh, whatever his name is character scathing reviews he got but like he's a terrible actor. Yeah. I mean, he's learned to take himself out of his movies. It took a long time. And he replaces himself with Eli Roth instead. He's not a good actor either. I think Christoph Waltz to me is like, you know, if you're going to have a guy who doesn't stop talking, you know, at least it's Christoph Waltz who, you know, has yeah. such a great energy and this beautiful musical flow to his voice. But for me, he seems like the mouthpiece of Tarantino so much in those recent films. Oh, no, absolutely. And also, I throw in Brad Pitt as well in Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. It's just like, it's just delightful <laughs> to listen to him talk. I think he really understands the musicality of like line delivery. Yeah. That there are people, Samuel L. Jackson's another one who like really understands, knows how to deliver his dialogue really well. DiCaprio is amazing in Django Unchained, yeah. who just really finds a flowery, beautiful way to say his, say his dialogue. And that's 
one of the things I think he's really great at. He's one, he's someone who I, I feel, you know, he was like one of the people who like really turned me, I went like completely next level cinephilic after that came out. Yeah. And he's someone who I feel is actually like aged very interestingly, though it has kept my attention uh, in part because it's not about just like recreating things or, you know, like he'll draw your attention to certain films and some of them will be trashy and some of them will be like really kind of like high art. But uh, he's always kind of like finding his new way of doing it. People like describe him as sort of like a DJ or like a mad scientist mixing different elements. But he's always creating something new out of them. Yeah. And that's why I've always like really, I've stuck with him over the years. So what else was was enticing you in, in, as a uh, as a college uh, student studying film? I mean, the, the Richard Lester thing. I was I was actually doing. A, I was banging out a lot of like the traditional film canon at that point. I was like, oh, I was really into Fellini, like super into Fellini. There was like one. I remember watching La Dolce Vita. I'd watched La Dolce Vita in high school, and eight and a half, I should say. By the way, it was like the first like foreign world cinema classic I ever watched, and that that opened. It's the a gates demanding for me. film. Yeah, it's a demanding film, but it was like I remember watching it. And I was like, this is everything I always wanted this film to be. Yeah, so I was yeah. reading a lot of film books at that point, and I, eight and a half kept coming up, and then Bergman was coming up a lot, but eight and a half was like that sounded like the craziest movie, and I had never seen a movie like that before. Um, but then La Dolce Vita, if you watch that right after eight and a half, you know, it's three hours long, it's a lot slower and so forth. It's not as exciting. It's not surreal because he yeah. didn't cross over. Eight and a half is when he like jumps the shark and becomes like a full on surrealist. <laughs> and he never looks back. He never made another naturalistic movie like that. I think uh, Gentry and Fred's pretty weird too, right? Yeah. I'll tell the truth. I, that's on my DVD pile. I, that's what I need to, to, to get to. I've never seen Ginger and Fred. Neither have I, nor Intervista. I've actually seen, uh, I've seen his last film, which no one has seen. Is it, that the Sea of Women or what's the... Voices uh, of the Moon. Oh, Voices or of the Voice Moon. of the Moon. I don't know if it's singular or plural, but uh, Roberto Benigni's in it. It was right. the only, I believe, the only Fellini film that was never released in America theatrically. Uh-huh. So I saw like a rare print of it, and uh, if you put a gun to my head, I couldn't tell you what it was about. I know <laughs> it was so weird and so strange, and I it was no foundation whatsoever. There was no center of gravity to it. I don't even know if it was bad or good or what. I need to probably see it again if ever. But the weirdest scene of it maybe is that Benini and who, whoever played the co-lead, they go to like a discotheque in the middle of a desert or something like that. And they're playing Michael Jackson's The Way You Make Me Feel, which they play in their, its entirety. Wow. And it's like a Michael Jackson song played in its entirety in a Federico Fellini film. <laughs> but anyway, so to backtrack again, I'm very... That's Eddie, okay. Eddie Izzard was a major influence <laughs> on me back when I was younger, so that probably inspired my tangent love. Um, but anyway, so like La Dolce Vita is a film in freshman year. I didn't have a lot of friends, and I would stay at home and watch movies. And La Dolce Vita is a film I put on, I don't know why, like one night, and I wound up being captivated by it on the second viewing. Yeah. In a way that I wasn't remotely, I was like a little bored and antsy when I first watched it, and like looking around and doing other things, and going, oh, is that Nico from Velvet Underground? You know? And being amazed that she was in Dolce Vita. <laughs> but, I mean, around the time I re- rediscovered it, I was, like, editing a film, you know, on VHS. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's just how we, because I was the last, <laughs> last class for that kind of stuff. We had to camp, we would shoot our films in camcorders and edit them with, like, you know, multiple decks and everything oh, like yeah, that. Yeah. And I had to wait for, you know, 
the footage, the footage to render, which would sometimes take like two or three hours. And I would just put on La Dolce Vita. And I probably watched it like ten times in the span of like a month and a half, maybe. So I got to know every single part of it. And I was completely obsessed with did like, it. Did it work your way into the, into the project you were working on? Yes, it did. Very poorly. I think there was like I, there was a party scene in like my last my oh, last movie that was like people hanging out in a dorm room as you were, and I think they were drinking soda rather than like you know champagne or whatever you know budget to budget yeah yeah, yeah. My, my kind of like puritanical <laughs> haven't discovered like beer or marijuana yet kind of years <laughs> this is what I imagine people and they were sitting around talking about like philosophy or something like that which is yeah. not the college experience what, so what was your uh, your your uh, colleagues in school your the students you were going through film school were they all into uh into foreign film and the history of film or I remember meeting a, a gentleman who was a Temple film student around that time and he told me that he wanted to make the next Die Hard you know even in like yeah. 2002 or whatever you know he he's like <laughs> I am a I'm a filmmaker of like large budget action films like he was sort of like wow. proclaiming himself in that. Brett Ratner <laughs> <laughs> I don't think this story ended happily for him necessarily but oh. but I mean was that what what, what were your uh, the other uh, students like I mean a lot of my friends and I, I love them but no they were not into that stuff at all they loved like mainstream cinema and they they like it was a, a lot of people were there for because of Tarantino everybody wanted to be Tarantino there were a lot of Tarantino knockoffs um, to the point where like I didn't want to make Tarantino knockoffs myself and I made Woody Allen knockoffs instead <laughs> so Woody Allen was another when I was in high school that was a major major yeah. influence on not only like my movie taste, but also like my life. Which 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 Woody Allen films were, had the hook in you? Uh, well, it was like one night I was watching Sleeper. I saw a double feature of Sleeper and A Night at the Opera, and I discovered Woody Allen and, and the Marx Brothers in the same night. It was oh, like fourteen go. or fifteen or something like that, <laughs> and my mind was completely blown. And then like Woody Allen, you know, I was just like, oh, I'm an erotic, <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, I'm just like a you know a white kid who goes to like you know Christian church. At that point, I'd never I'd never thought of myself as you know having like that kind of sensibility but it was like oh this is me i'm always thinking about like worrying about things way too much and like anguishing and being too self-involved i'm just gonna be woody allen yeah like a gentile woody allen it, well it was it was a real for, for me i talk about you know and all these things you're talking about very male you know yeah being, wanting to be yeah, tarantino yeah. and stuff for, but looking for sort of male role models you know I, I i wasn't very attracted to you know the Charles Bronson as any sort of like personal <laughs> role model or whatever, uh, you know, it's hard to 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 uh, to want to be you know to pull off Steve McQueen at you know twelve years old or whatever. But yeah. Woody Allen, I recognized as being you know an intellectual. I wore glasses already, you know, like yeah. like there was something that that was really appealing to me as a sort of a male role model, even you know, which which could be a terrible role model, and it's very weird to talk about Woody Allen now because like yeah. I always had to put this like I, I don't like to talk about. All the time. I don't tell everybody that I was a huge Woody Allen film growing up because there's all these like implications about it. Yeah, you have to have exactly. uncomfortable, necessary conversations about that. But yeah. anyway, but like I, you know, when I was growing up, like I was idolizing. I always wanted to be like Harrison Ford in, in movies or something like that. I always wanted to be the hero. I always imagined myself as the hero who's going to save the day. And as I got older, and I realized I couldn't really do that. Once I got to Woody <laughs> Allen, I'm like, oh, I can be this instead. Yeah. This will be my role model as being like you know reading books and going to weird art house films and things like that. This is like the world I actually want to be a part of that is actually like achievable for me rather than like saving the day in a terrorist situation inside of a giant building, yeah. like being Bruce Willis or something like that. And the fact that those Woody Allen films rolled out, you know, one a year for years, they, they gave you a lot to chew on, you know. It, it, it took a long time to get through the Woody Allen back catalog. And I, I did it before I left high school. But yeah. um, And in fact, I loved, by the time 
I didn't really see Woody Allen films in the theater until I got to college, until I moved to Philadelphia. And I think the first one was Deconstructing Harry. And I was like, I went to go see it like three or four times. Because I'm like, (laughs) I finally see Woody Allen films in the theater, first run. I don't have to wait for like the VHS of Everybody Says I Love You or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah. That was a good one to follow on, I guess, Deconstructing Harry. It could be be worse in that era. It's it's still one of my favorite Woody Allen films. It's so sour and nasty and unpleasant and a nasty self-critique that's also a critique of philip roth he's like kind of like blending himself with philip yeah. roth in that is, so. is, is billy crystal in that he is as is robin williams oh wow yeah the second film of 1997 the feature both robin williams and billy crystal the other being father's day by ivan reitman wow i didn't realize that was that far back pointless trivia so <laughs> <laughs> i i uh, celebrity was starting to be when when he was really losing his luster for me i think and yeah. i speaking about harrison ford i, I had a, a a brief college crush on Calista Flockhart. Oh wow! Who was was just she went went to my college. She was a student. Oh, oh, you actually had a real. (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay. She was a dance major at Glassboro State in 1983 and 84. So I was very smitten with her, and I always remembered her name, Calista Flockhart. And then one day, reading the newspaper, you know, the new Fox show stars. The girl I had a crush on in freshman year, you know, but she, but uh, she wasn't doing all that much at that time. But she does make an appearance in Celebrity, and so I was very excited. Yeah, very small appearance in Celebrity. You know, I think before she was a star. But uh, wow, wow, it was probably shot like right before like Al McBeal was shot. It was in that same moment. She was also wow. in a, a movie called Drunks, I think, that Richard Lewis. Yes, yeah. and uh, I think Faye Dunaway is in that. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So the the, Parker the the cinema of Callista Flockhart works its way into the tangent, but but uh, talk about the birdcage later if you want. I'm okay with <laughs> but Woody Allen, I mean, yeah, for, for me, you know, quintessential. Uh, I saw Sleeper in the in the theater when it first came out. And oh so, wow, okay. this big slapstick comedy version, and he was a. Uh, people forget how dominant he was in the culture. He wasn't only like a regular host of the Tonight Show, but he had a Sunday, he had a, a daily comic in the comic strips, which I've never read. And how are they? Uh, did he write them himself? No, he didn't write them at all. You know, and they're they're very they're I liked them at the time. I, I haven't gone back to to really pursue them, but uh, you know, it was capturing that Nebushi character and everything. But he was he was really everywhere. So so for him to make the transition from a straight com- comedic act, uh, director to a, a director sort of of art films or whatever, it, mm. I, it took me along with that journey. And so he's part of my film going DNA in a way that, you know, has only become more troubling as his, you know, uh, yeah. uh, not only for the, the quality of his work, which in, in the early 2000s, really, I thought took a big dive. Uh, it's recovered somewhat recently, but, yeah. you know, as a, as a, a sexual being, he's, uh, he's <laughs> become dominant it in ways that aren't very comfortable to you know yeah, no, wrangle I mean, with i mean it's, it's weird i mean like the perception the, the public perception of woody allen has changed so much not just because of that thing but i think when i grew up i thought of him because like i was i was growing up in the 80s and he was making serious films like hannah and her sisters which i remember like seeing clips of at like the oscars or whatever that and i'm like that is a movie i never want to see in my life i am <laughs> i am i'm seven years old i or i'm not i'm never going to watch hannah and her sisters so i thought of him as like a really boring like serious guy and it was by accident catching Sleeper one night. I'm like, wait, he's funny? I, I didn't know this. <laughs> and then my parents actually had a copy of Stand Up Comic, which was his like compilation stand-up. Yeah. And I listened to that after I watched Sleeper. And I'm like, oh my God, he's completely hilarious. The Moose. I mean, one of the most the beautifully wrought comic stories of all time, I think. That's, yeah. a, that's a great story. I also love the one about uh, Eggs Benedict, which is uh, his, <laughs> his friend who dies and he... They have like he they have the same disease or like some ailment and he dies and he's like oh my god how did he die and 
It's like, it was quick. The truck hit him and it was it. <laughs> anyway, I, I told that story terribly. Woody Allen would have done a much better job in the 1960s. Yeah, he was, I mean, a real scientist of comedy, I guess, as a young man contributing to, yeah, I think it was, it was a newspaper columnist. One of the first things he started with, like, writing jokes for and everything. And he was writing jokes for, like, Bob Hope and, like, yeah. oh, it's, it's, it's amazing. He was, he was great back then, but... Uh, so, uh, was there any big paper you had to write to to, to leave college uh, as a film uh, major? What, what did you write your uh, your? Uh... We didn't. I, I didn't really have a thesis. I remember I, I took a, a class in like I was like history of film or something like that. Some some really general class, and I wound up writing. I got really into Powell and Pressburger. Those were those were two big filmmakers I discovered like latter latter kind of year of college. Yeah. And uh, I wrote a really unreadable thing that has hopefully completely vanished from this planet <laughs> on some dead hard drive somewhere. Like who knows? But it was a really bad paper. What were you? What were you focusing on? On the, on the great British filmmakers of the 20th century? I, I don't know what the, even the focus of the paper was. It was like a general. I should have like focused. I learned this later on that you have to like if you're writing a paper on like yeah. a specific director, you have to like focus on something very very specific. Yeah. Which so is it a, could have been like Helen Mirren's, you know, a performance in a, a matter of consent. Does it, Age yeah, of Consent. Age of Consent. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I had seen it at that point. I was really, in, I was watching like, you know, Tales of Hoffman and like A Canterbury Tale, which is an amazing film. And like, um, I, Matter of Life and Death, aka Stairway to Heaven, is still, I think, one of the greatest films I've ever seen. Yeah. It's like, that's the top 10 for me. Yeah, yeah. I always think of them with a, with a, a certain quality that film, some filmmakers have, where as soon as the film starts, you feel like you're in the hands of a master and that yeah. like everything is going to be, you know, perfectly wrought to sort of tell this tale. Like, there's 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 such an intelligence that's immediately apparent in all their films that like i'm, I'm sold you know right from the beginning yeah you, you just feel like you're in good hands you feel like everybody and it's a very they're very deeply eccentric on top of that so yeah. if you're like really you get on their wavelength um I mean, it, they're like some of the most gripping films i've ever seen stairway yeah. to heaven is just one of the most eccentric weird like blockbusters ever made it's a really expensive looking film yeah it's, like, it's shot in like partially in, in technicolor like three beautiful three trip Technicolor by Jack Cardiff, and there's this black and white sequences, and there's like that giant staircase, the actual stairway to heaven that they have to build, which is this like hugely expensive thing. And they really seem to particularly bloom on the big screen as well. You know, there's... I wish I'd seen, I've never, I haven't seen a whole lot of them on a big screen. I think a stairway to heaven would be a, a Tales of Hoffman on a big screen would be incredible. Yeah, I can't yeah. imagine that. It's a big restoration, and I think in the 90s of Stairway to Heaven, I saw it at the Castro. And oh, the, yeah. The scene after David Niven crashes in the beginning, I just remember like looking at it on screen, and that was, you know, sometimes that quality of Technicolor where like this looks more real than any modern film, even. You know, there's something so vivid and alive about it that's. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, yeah, they they certainly are you know favorites of mine as well. All the way back to Edge of the World, which I think has that amazing cliff climbing scene. Oh, I haven't. That's one I haven't seen. Oh, I haven't really? seen a lot of the latter day Powell and Pressburger stuff, like Ill Met by Moonlight, or even like I always want to see the Elusive Pimpernel because that looks nuts. Yeah, yeah, I, I still would catch up with that one. The Boy with Yellow Hair I have here, which is one of the. Oh, that's a that, that's Lozy though. Oh, not the oh, Boy no, with no, Yellow no, Hair. No, no, you're right. No, no, of... I, boy, green hair is. Yeah, yeah, and there's also. <laughs> the, the, have you seen the the Bartok? Uh, uh, oh yeah, the, the opera like, piece. Yeah, yeah, it's like Bluebeard's Castle. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's yeah. really, really weird looking in, in a great way. I should. Yeah, say. yeah, it almost re- set design wise, it almost reminds me of a Star Trek episode with all these incredible uh, <laughs> colors, you know, that are, that are sort of washed across the screen. I mean, it's. I mean, I've seen like his last two films, which are like uh, There Are Weird Mob and um, Last Two Features, I should say. There Are Weird Mob and um, Age of Consent, which are both shot in Australia, and they're not as formally exciting. Yeah, I mean, even the you know, Peeping Tom looks amazing in 1960, but even like 
five or six years later, I guess you just couldn't get the money to do these things. They're not as like formally exciting, but they're very interesting in terms of like subject matter and like what they're actually focusing on. Yeah, like yeah. Age of Consent is like a great portrayal of an artist and you know, his relationship with the model who inspires him. Yeah. Um, that's all really good. It's not as thrilling as like, especially no, it's not- James Mason and, and Helen Mirren. They really are incredibly captivating to watch on screen. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's beautiful footage of like the great barrier reef in that movie. And that's, that's kind of it. Yeah. But uh, no, it's, it's it's. But that's it's, enough. That's, you can make you can make a movie out of that. Yeah, young Helen Mirren and the Great Barrier Reef. It's and then James Mason just being there. Yeah, that's all you need in a movie. Yeah. I, I'm a sucker for films about painters as well. Yeah. Oh yeah, they're they're amazing. Yeah, I did a whole uh, class actually on the uh, films of uh, sort of biographies of, of real life painters. Uh, oh yeah, the, well, like Lust for Life and uh, Van Gogh by Maurice Pilat. All great ones, not the ones I hit though. Oh, which one? I hit uh, Vincent and Theo, the the Altman film. That's a great film. Yeah. Uh, the film about bacon. Uh, oh, Love Is the Devil with Daniel Craig as yeah. his lover. Yeah. Yes, yeah. which I, which I really enjoyed. Seraphine, the the French film that won all the Caesars a few years ago about the naive painter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Art- Artemisia about Artemisia Gentileschi, the re- Renaissance painter. That was maybe the least interesting film of the batch it, but it, it actually was uh, protested by Gloria Steinem I believe and so I got to Ooh. pass out the the uh, paper that she passed out uh, to people in line to the film <laughs> this film didn't uh, you know do do credit to the real Artemisia Gentileschi so at least that got some discussion going hmm. and the last film that we saw was Mr. Turner, the uh, Mike Lee film. Oh, that's a really good film. Yeah, yeah. To be able to put up the uh, uh, the slides of, of these painters' work and then to see how the, you know, on the same screen to show the film, you know, you could really get a sense of, of how they the filmmakers, you know, sort of took from the painters to, you know, uh, get their their work across. Of course. Uh, there's also Mystery of Picasso is one of my favorite painter films. Oh, yeah. That's because yeah. you get to watch him paint in real time. Well, not in real time, but like, semi-live yeah yeah because there's that part like halfway through where he's just like well how long did it take me to paint that and it was like four hours and he did <laughs> edit it down the stroke so it looks like basically an animated film it's yeah. incredible to watch So how did you take this uh, film degree from Temple and turn it into a writing <laughs> career? Were you writing for Philadelphia Weekly before you left college? Yeah, well, yeah. I actually got the job uh, right after my junior year. Yeah, yeah. I think it was like junior year. So I spent my senior year, like I was interning for about like six months at the Philadelphia Weekly. And like, they had a bustling office at that point downtown. Oh, it was and so ex- Yeah, it was like downtown. It was like a beautiful office at like 18th and Walnut, I want to say. Samson, was it? The, the little smaller screen? That was, they moved to that one a couple okay. years later, but they were right off of Walnut. I believe uh-huh. so they moved into like a smaller place they were like on three floors it was crazy yeah different time huh? especially if you look at it now I mean there's like five six people work there total I think it was like an entire advertising office back yeah. then and, and the output shows it yeah I mean it was it was great because like we you know we were there for like I was there for like the last gasp of the all weekly craze because they were just handing out columns like left and right yeah, it's, it's something I, I mean, I was thinking back around the turn of the century, 2000 or so, they were saying they were forecasting the death of the recording industry. And I, I couldn't quite get, wrap my head around how that could 
even happen, you know. And uh, I think 10 years later, the, the recording industry made about half as much money as it made, you know, 10 years before. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like, you know, that, that um, it doesn't really have the, the dominance in the uh, in the culture that uh, that it does. And, and hearing about the death of alt-weeklies, I mean, alt-weeklies were a cornerstone cultural institution. I, uh, you know, uh, used to uh, date people through the back of the alt-weekly when I lived in San Francisco. <laughs> and uh, I guess one of the things that really, really killed it is the... Uh, uh, one of the things that really supported the alt weeklies were the, the the sex ads that were in the back of all of them, and that was an industry that could, was easily engulfed by the internet, and that was one of the real financial motors. The classifieds in general, I think. Oh yeah. Uh, the death of the classifieds is part of what really took the 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 the, uh, the, the fuel out of the alt weekly world that uh, yeah. you know really was so much part of a culture. It's completely true. I mean, for many years, part of my income was supplemented by sex workers. So, I mean, that's that's what it's what it was. I mean, it was great. But I mean, when I first started the Philly Weekly, which is like back in two thousand, like it was like a hundred pages or more every week, yeah. and you had to like you know fill that with like columns, and people just had like columns that were just about like like here are my random interests. Here's what I'm listening to this week. They had like for years I had a thing called like top five of the moment. And it's just like they would pass it off to different writers. And they would just be like, here are five things, and some of them could be artistic, or some of them could just be like dumb thoughts I have in my head, the kind of things we put on Twitter now every now and then. Yeah. And it was great. I got to, I only wrote one of those, and when they asked me, I got really excited, and I got really into it. I was I'm like, getting excited to imagine what mine would be, but what ended up in yours? Um, <laughs> I remember, there was a show, I got really into this British show called Connections. I think this is what I led off with, which is really weird. But um, <laughs> to show you how weird Alt Weekly is for, um, it was a show called Connections that was uh, from the 70s, 80s, and 90s by this uh, scientific uh, historian named James Burke, who's a charming British man with glasses who you know is old and balding and stuff like that. But he knew everything about the history of, of science, basically. And what he would do is he would start with like one scientific discovery, and then he would connect it to another one, and then he'd connect that to another one, and then that to another one. And sometimes he would circle back to the original one, or he would just... I think he had one season where like, it was one long daisy chain over like 10 hour long episodes. And it was just like, you would just learn all these like random factoids, basically. Like he would give you like a little like mini primer on something small. Like he would say like, I'm making this up. This isn't true. Uh, discovery of penicillin, how it's, how it's connected to uh, uh, ballpoint pens. Yeah. Not, not a thing, but he would find some connection. <laughs> like, it's like, well, this person, you know, he, you know, he funded this and then that didn't work out. And he made ballpoint pens instead or something like that. And, and sort of writing for the alt weeklies, you were looking for something that wasn't being written about everywhere, you know. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's an example of something I'm sure wasn't getting a lot of coverage otherwise. <laughs> no one was talking about the show at all, and I, was, I felt really cool that I was introducing the world to this thing. There were alternative weeklies, so I mean, you're supposed to offer an alternative uh, view of the world, and also just like be someone who is a spelunker in the culture and history, and knows about weird things that no one else knows, and then priding yourself and finding a public space to air your love of this thing so yeah, yeah. i think i wrote about board games I think settlers of Catan. i wrote about before a game what it is now which is like everybody plays that everybody owns a copy of settlers of Catan. leave but... me off that list but okay <laughs> <laughs> but i think i wrote uh, there was an altman movie that had just come out on criterion i think it was a uh, was this nixon movie with the philip baker hall oh um, yeah um, um... <laughs> Who knows? It's... Oh, I do know that though. Oh boy, me too. Um, I, 
oh my god, I don't know, I can't remember this. Yeah, this is one of the great things about aging is I can't remember <laughs> '80s Altman movies. That was that when he was doing all the sort of the stage adaptions when his, his career sort of sunk a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, when he did like a Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, which is actually a really good film. Yeah. He uses, I mean, he uses the, the stage. laser disc of that. It's it's good. I finally saw that uh, projected on thirty five millimeter a couple uh-huh. of years ago. So that was fun. Streamers in that same uh, pocket. Yeah, we're not really liking streamers, but maybe maybe it's really good. Um, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the alternative weekly alternative weeklies were amazing at that time, and I was like, I was writing for them for like a long time. I wrote uh, mostly the repertory section. I did that for like eight years. Like oh, that's weekly. right. I remember. Yeah, you really were going all the sort of small library screenings of unusual <laughs> films that were going on. You were on top of all that. I yeah. spent way more time doing that every week than I should have, considering what I was being paid for it. Like, yeah. I, I would rent movies from like TLA, and it was actually really good for like an education because I would like. You know, I'd never seen some obscure Billy Wilder film, or I'd never seen like this William Wyler film, or something like that. I would actually go and watch it, and like my weekly like screening stuff, my log that I would just watch at home was incredible. That's how I saw so many films that are both part of the canon and extremely obscure films that I I house showed all these amazing films back then. Sure. And they still do. I mean, still do. They're still one of the best programs in town. Yeah. Oh, it's an amazing place. But I mean, back then too, the repertory scene in Philadelphia was so yeah. rich and vibrant. There was a what was the place that was like right off of Broadway? Um, God, this is this has been gone for like fifteen years. Off of Broadway? No, Broadway. Broadway. <laughs> off of Broad. Broad Street. So oh, the uh, I live, the, I live, the Temple Cinema Tech. Or, no, or, no, no, no. It was like this one older guy, and then he died in like two thousand one, two thousand two, and he showed films on Saturday nights. It would be like a double feature, and we'd yeah, get to you should millimeter. do it at the Jewish Cinema Center. Yeah, yeah. He was the same guy, David, who did the Temple Cinema Tech, which used to be on uh, Walnut and Seventeenth when I first got the town in the eighties. Yeah, yeah. Where I first saw Paz of Glory, but yeah, he, he he finished up there, I think, at the Jewish Cinema Center. Mm. I saw Whiskey Galore there when I moved back to town. Oh wow, that's, <laughs> Ealing uh, Films. Yes, that's amazing. I think I only went to one. I think I saw eight and a half. Yeah. Or whatever. It was on 16 millimeter. I don't know why. He was a major 16 collector. Yeah. Yeah. He was really great. I mean, it was like part of that whole history of like, you know, I was there for like the, the tail end of the big, rich repertory scene going through Philadelphia, which is yeah. now basically like, you know, Jay Schwartz and, and International House. And is there anything well, else? Well, Philomoca with Eric Philomoca. Yeah. does a lot of beautiful right. work. I, I hate to, uh, there's the. Um, uh, Allison Silverman used to manage the the Ritz has a series the Cinema Ray that she does around town. Oh, great! Where she she hauls a, I think a thirty five millimeter projector to some places that uh, <laughs> that is, is portable, and uh, of course exhumed films with the oh uh, right yes of course with the uh, Harry Guerrero and gang is uh, when I interviewed Sean Baker I, I mentioned there's a big genre film following here and he mentioned Garage House Pictures Harry's uh, DVD label he was already. Uh, tuned in as well and uh, yeah. Andrew's video vault for years I, I took part in over at the uh, Rotunda yeah. and some of the most obscure and uh, oh, off the beaten track films there. I've seen so many bizarre films because of Andrew it's <laughs> uh, Caf- Cafe Flesh was one of my favorite ones that, oh, yeah. that I had never heard of and it was like this like art porno film and it's really a porno film starring actual porn actresses but it's like a really good dystopian movie about the future yeah rinse dream yeah i, I uh <laughs> it's a singular film it's a singular film where uh maybe the most yeah artsy uh porn film ever made about a future where people become repulsed if they touch each other sexually and there's some people that are sex positives that can still have sexual emotions and they're forced to act them out on a, in a uh, surreal new wavy cafe from 1984 or something yeah that was, yeah. That was the, i was around at the end of the midnight films 
those uh, sort of years, and uh, that was something you would see in the midnight film circuit. Yeah, it's great. I mean, Exhum Films is also a place I've, I've seen so many bizarre films because of them. I mean, I've gone to the, I've used to go to their Hearthathon. Now I can't really get away from New York during that weekend, yeah. but like they'll just show films I've never even heard of, and yeah. it's really fun when like the films are really obscure. And they they just get everybody riled up. I think the great one is Raw Force. Oh yeah, like nineteen eighty four, starring like it was like stuntmen are like all the leads. And yeah, I think Harry Reams is he? A, oh no, no, no Raw Force. I'm sorry, thinking of another film. I'm sorry, Forest Entry. I'm thinking. Oh of. God. But yeah, Raw Raw Force is yeah uh, 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 one of the most sort of whack action films of that time. Yeah, it's like a, it's a martial arts movie that uh, turns into like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls for about ten minutes in the middle for some reason, and it's about an island of like like monks and they have to like they eat like supermodels and then they summon up dead monks and it's so it's so batshit and great and if you see it at the Harathon if it's like you know three o'clock in the morning if something comes to this and you're not completely awake and maybe you've had a few drinks even or something <laughs> like this can fall into a weird nether world of things I'm not sure I'm actually seeing you know oh no no, no that's great my, my favorite story about the Exhum Marathon I went to uh, I think it was like the second year it was around like 7 a.m. and you know it goes from like noon to noon and so I've been watching movies for like a million hours and I was completely crazy and I'm sleep deprived and they showed Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 and I'd never seen that before and I was like I think I was like lying on like the chair next to me as well like sort of trying to stay awake it's such a loud abrasive obnoxious movie and I mean that as a compliment it's such an amazingly just obnoxious movie and uh, I, I was convinced I had fallen asleep during the middle of it because, like, I, I wake up or so, I think, and Dennis Hopper is, like, entering this compound and there's this endless climax. It's just loud and obnoxious and abrasive and great. People wearing pig's heads, I think you remember it's, or something. Oh, yeah, and just, yeah. uh, Dennis Hopper says, like, I'm taking it down, 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 down. He says it, like, 400 times. This is well before Dennis Hopper had recovered from the sort of insane, like, batshit crazy era of the of the 70s or whatever he's yeah still, i think was really a loose cannon trying to reestablish himself at that point i love that period of dennis hopper it's it's i think it's like right at the very very end of it because i think like a couple months later you get blue velvet and then hoosiers yeah. yeah. and then he then he's fine for the rest of his life more or less <laughs> you know <laughs> he votes for obama eventually yeah, he stopped voting yeah. for bush and <laughs> voting for reagan and stuff like that yeah. but um but yeah so i i was convinced that i had fallen asleep during i missed the second act and so i rented the dvd to like finally see it all and i realized I, I, there there is no second act i was never asleep it's just <laughs> it's a really 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 long first act and then a super long third act yeah. it's a very weird structure to that film i i saw it when it first came out and uh, it barely got a release but there was a theater that had only turned from a porn theater like weeks before and they booked it in, in Glassboro, in that college town. And so I was excited that there was some theater that was showing it, but like, did not know what to make of it at all after I saw it. It's it's a bewildering movie. It's yeah. really good. One of my favorite Toby Hooper films. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you ended up, uh, you know, pursuing uh, further uh, academia hmm. uh, in uh, in your film career, and you went. To, did you go to NYU? Where did you end up going? I went to NYU. I went to the wow. Cinema Studies program. The very expensive, I will never pay it off, cinema studies program <laughs> in New York. Um, at that time, I was sort of having, it was like 30-something, and I was having a sort of like early midlife crisis. I was sure, it was, you know, 2008 is when like journalism started dying. Yeah. And it's been dying for like, you know, nine years. It was like 
when papers advertising like went out of papers started losing advertising and the first people to go of course are like the film people so like film critics started losing their jobs in droves around that time you say of course but you know that's the first thing i look at when i pick up a newspaper so right yeah you're one of the last people (laughs) i pick up a newspaper and you pick up a newspaper i I think they they too quickly made the idea that content isn't really important you know it's right you know that 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 couldn't have any effect on how many people bought the paper but you Mm. know the death of quality you know quality in the in the paper is really been why i read less papers than i have oh yeah me too i think you can still read the new york times which is still really well written absolutely yeah i mean it's a a great paper one of the only papers i really read so but i mean just having like quality journalism like really informative pieces and especially with arts coverage you know that's i mean i love having like really great this sounds stupid i really love having great arts coverage (laughs) like thoughtful like you know when when i you know when i started reading reviews or didn't really start doing until like i was in college i think my freshman year that's when i first started reading pauline kale I wouldn't yeah. read Andrew Saris until like a long time after that. James A.G., same thing. Manny yeah. Farber, same thing. Otis Ferguson. And, I didn't and, discover until grad school. In high school, I skipped school to go see Andrew Saris speak. That's amazing. <laughs> I wish... I, I Andrew Saris is amazing, and I love uh, Confessions of a Cultist as a collection. Yeah. Because like he... I mean, when he takes down a film, even if you don't agree with him, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. He's a great thinker, a great writer. Yeah. I, I did go up and talk to him afterwards, and he was. I told him I, I skipped school, and he said, well, geez, can I write you a note or anything? <laughs> I, I should have taken him up on him, but I was too shy to even take up any more of his time. Oh, but, that's, that's incredible. But just listening to him talk for like an hour about film or whatever, was you know was it was rich for me as a as a high school kid yeah he's he's amazing i didn't yeah i didn't really start reading that until like undergrad so what was my point of telling the story i don't know (laughs) that that, uh you started reading film journalism at at some point you read uh, right (laughs) yeah and then you know i I think i was actually writing reviews before i started reading a lot of like the big reviewers like roger ebert i didn't even start reading until like undergrad really um like i knew i was aware of siskel and ebert but i didn't really pay them attention i think i even hated them when i was a kid yeah because they, they liked all the snooty films. They didn't like all the movies that I liked. So, of course, you know, I, had, I was a, the classic case of plebeians not enjoying yeah. film criticism. Well, I mean, then again, looking back, I mean, they listen to how harsh they were on horror films. You know, I can't embrace that as a modern uh, yeah. viewer. I mean, they, were they you know, gave their worst venom to, you know, any sort of slasher film at a certain point. Yeah. That's true. Although those films aged, I think, pretty interestingly. Yeah. Like most horror films, I think, actually, even if you don't enjoy them when they first come out, I think, like, the horror is one of the great genres that really reflects the times and the culture yeah. at the time because, like, there are the films that has no gatekeepers like no one's paying attention to the horror films and so like the filmmakers if they're really smart they can slip in subversive genuinely subversive thought into their movies yeah um even something as dumb as Saul six uh is basically i mean it's a big thing about the healthcare system in america and how evil it is <laughs> how it turns us how it turns everybody into monsters yeah, yeah. not everybody but it's like the, the the people who run it are monsters who are just parasites seeking to destroy people's lives. So you went back to school and you went to NYU and 
what 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 was that experience like? I mean, you must have had some some well known speakers and teachers uh, over the years there. Oh uh, yeah, I had a couple. I mean, Dana Poland, I think it was probably the most famous person. Uh, I I took two classes with him. He's written. I mean, he's not hugely famous because people in academia there's very few like I don't know there's no real Kim Kardashian of academia or something like that. I have no <laughs> idea what the equivalent would be the Tarantino of academia there's not really many celebrity academics but yeah. like he's like he's someone who's written like the BFI book on Pulp Fiction and like yeah. he does I think he does like Criterion commentary tracks and he was a great professor he was one of my favorites but um it was weird because like when I went to grad school the whole thing was like I'm going to try to get away from journalism I'll fall into, I'll, I'll go to grad school I'll learn some other angle and fall into that like curating was one I kind of wanted to get into or archiving and I, I took classes in that but the problem was like I, I got to New York and um, my Philly Weekly job sort of like dried up a little bit they were you know it was always like cutting back over the years it's like yeah. we're, we're shrinking the size of the section you know a little bit and then a little bit and a little bit and then finally it was going to be like one page yeah and it was like I was for years like I was living off of it was just me and Sean Burns at one point mm-hmm. you had vacated to like Fokker so yeah um, so it was just me and Sean Burns and like we would every week we would meet up over email and say like okay what do you want to cover and I'll take the rest cool and we would just do it and, but it would always be like uh, maybe two or three reviews from me and then he had like a lead review and then I had this like column thing that I was doing for years I did a thing called six pack that's right yeah. which was like yeah we would just find like a very specific theme and make a listicle yeah. and it would just be six and it would be like um, I think the first one that I ever did was like, you know, films about the black experience told through a white perspective. So it'd be like yeah. Cry Freedom and those kind of films. And that's, that's, but I mean, that's something you've sort of, you know, moved over to the, uh, your, your coverage in the Metro. And it's something you see much more of that sort of, you know, listing of, of, you know, the six greatest Japanese yeah. <laughs> decapitation films. If I, if I could be immodest, my listicles were so much better than modern listicles, which are garbage. Because they're all like, you know, here's 25, all Marvel films ranked, which is exhausting. Yeah, and like, yeah. you know, like it's just all ranked and it's all like really broad. Mine were like super hyper specific that are not very SEO friendly. Um, yeah. And some of them I think did well online, but I think not really that many. But SEO, just, please uh, translate that for me. Uh, so, oh, I'm so, something engineered optim. I have no idea. I forget what it's actually. Is called. it about clicks? Is it about click optimization? It's about headline and like that's what when people Google they search for this term they for, for oh, certain okay. keywords. So you have uh-huh. to get the keywords in the title, and a lot of the times the headline will be misleading in some capacity, rather like minimally misleading or grossly misleading. Yeah. Um, the sexiest violent films of Nicole Kidman. Oh my god! Yeah, uh, there. Was, I was yeah. A lot of the you have to write those nowadays. It has to be like sexiest or like best or whatever, and it has to be about like something that people already know. Yeah. And when I was writing listicles, because it was for an alternative weekly, and we didn't really care about clicks too much, uh-huh. um, I could just write about whatever, and it would be like tied to whatever like new movie is coming out. Like it could be small or it could be big, and I would really pride myself in like going through and searching more through like film history to find like films that no one's heard of, including me. And getting to write very, 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 very short blurbs about them that were yeah. criminally too short. And it was really difficult to write, but it was great to actually research. Because yeah. I got to learn about all like weird like alleyways of a film that no one really talks about anymore. And learn about I've learned about so many bizarre films that I still to this day have not seen because they're unavailable. Yeah. yeah. 
So um, it was just really fun, kind of writing about that kind of stuff. I was telling somebody like, "Oh, that's the best of the new of the of the moonshine films," and they were like, "There's a genre of moonshine films." They're like, yes, of course, there's a genre. I would of love to see some moonshine films. <laughs> People versus Larry Flint has some moonshine in it. Yeah, well, I mean, the the, the granddaddy Thunder Road, the, the Robert Thunder Mitchum Road, film. Yes. Yeah, and then there's you know like moonshiners in the seventies. Like they, these are ones that were sort of geared for the Southern drive-in, and uh, yeah. you know a lot of that sort of uh, inspired. Uh, or sort of uh, epitomized by the Smokey and the Bandit film. Which I finally caught up with the first one for the very first time ever in my life this yeah. summer. Oh, it was, it was so much fun. <laughs> I think I enjoyed it even more than the first Star Wars, to be honest. That, that's what I often put it together with, because I think I saw them both in the same you know summer or whatever, and I'm like, hey, yeah, I like Star Wars, but I would have just as soon like lived in the Smokey and the Bandit universe where <laughs> there's, you know... 15 films that are all about elements of Smokey and the Bandit. I mean, the sequels are bad, right? Didn't shake out that way. Uh, bad is a is a is a relative term. <laughs> yeah, I heard they're not as enjoyable as the first one. There's like it's... no, it doesn't quite have the energy of the first one. But uh, you know, Jackie Gleason in like multiple roles is you know that's uh, that's a thing. That's that sounds wonderful. I will watch these one of these days. But the first one's a a delightful film. Don't and, go, don't go as far as to the uh, TV movie, uh, uh, non-Burt Reynolds affiliated bandit films of the two thousands. Uh, that's that's a dark place. Deal. I will not do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, Burt Reynolds is someone who I need, really need to like watch more of his films. I've been seeing a lot of his seventies films. It's really yeah. weird. Yeah, uh, Deliverance, of course. Is of course, a, you know, a, a standout. But um, Seamus, I guess, Fuzz. Um, Gator, yeah, oh, Gator and White Lightning, Moonshine films, uh, oh, right, White right. Lightning, uh, you know, is, is a great one. Yeah, there's 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 some interesting films there. But as a kid, I remember him as sort of being like the biggest movie star in the world. You know, as I was sort of coming to age in films, and I yeah. I could never imagine there would be a world where he wasn't you know the biggest star or whatever. It's very strange. I mean, like I did not experience that in the '70s. He was the biggest draw in the world. I mean, he could make whatever movie, and it would make all the money that year. Yeah. Like yeah. Uh, what's the one what about the stuntman Hooper? Where is that Hooper. That's one. Of the, that's one of the better ones actually. Yeah, I've that's heard that. Hal Needham, who was a stuntman, is uh, when you talk about the great stuntman directors. Probably Hal Needham would be the uh, yes. the top of that that group. Hal Needham was very good. Yeah, um, I need to see a lot more of those. I mean, it's like weird because like I, those films kind of just fell out of favor because they're just you know trashy, fun little movies that don't have. They're not the kind of th- films that get like rediscovered, basically. Yeah, yeah. So I really need to. Well, well, I mean, you really appreciate that, that uh, you know, in the world before CGI is real stunts going on. To go back and watch those films, I, I sort of like was much more aware of the real danger that people were in in these films in a way that I'm not sure they often are in today's films. Oh, I mean, Smoking the Bandit looks so dangerous. It looks like Mad Max dangerous. Yeah. I mean, there's so many stunts. They're driving so fast. And I yeah. really have no idea. And, and they were guys who like... just sat around and thought of like crazy things to do, obviously. Yeah, of course. And it's, it's incredible looking. I mean, you sell. You've, you've, speeding car is going like 150 miles per hour with Sally Field in the car and it doesn't look like green screen it looks like they're really doing it it's really impressive Yeah, more impressive than Star Wars the first one (laughs) Empire maybe not. Maybe I'll take Empire over Smoking the Bandit one. <laughs> no matter who, no matter who I have to talk about film, like uh, there's no way we can escape talking about Star Wars. <laughs> that, uh, you know, Travis Crawford. You know, it's it's right. funny how like how I, I just never would have thought that would become so dominant in the culture that you know it's hard. It's like it's like living in Delaware and not saying Dupont once a day. Like it's <laughs> it's hard to escape the the Star Wars uh, thing, and it, and it's 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 fascinating to me that it's so. There's very little 
anti-Star Wars backlash. It's really uh, there's some. There's some, but I mean, it, if, if you really uh, Jay Hoberman and like you know Jonathan Rosenbaum and those guys, I always hated Star Wars. They yeah. never understood it. But I'm part of like I grew up as in the '80s, so like I was raised on Star Wars, and I'm not remotely surprised that it is like the biggest thing in the world. Yeah. I mean, even even with the prequels, everybody hated the prequels. They made a lot of money, but they're not loved. Everybody hates them. Yeah. But their uh, Star Wars is so strong it overcame the prequels. How about this incredible that incredible Dead Zone though, when they really did nothing with the series. You know, after yeah. after the Ewok movies or so, they'd pretty much given up. You know, well, and, there was uh, a TV. There were things like the Ewok Adventure, which I watched. Yeah. Those they had like little TV movies. But yeah, it's unimaginable right now. Like, why wouldn't you seize upon that and just turn it into like what they are now, which is like copying the Marvel model, which is like spinning off into a cinematic universe. Yeah. Yeah. Like once, I mean, Iron Man's kind of the movie that. Like, it's just Jaws level in terms of, like, just changing the movie landscape. Yeah. Because that's, like, the, the death of, like, the mid-budget film. It's all, like, cinematic universes at this point. Yeah. To the point where sometimes, like, you'll have weeks and there's, like, no new movies opening in the multiplex. <laughs> it's like, whoops, we forgot to make a movie because they all cost too much money and they all have to make so much money to yeah. succeed and be connected to all these other movies. I, I was sort of fascinated how the whole sort of franchise building was laid bare recently with... Uh, the announcement of the Universal Classic Horror oh franchise that they were going to launch with with Tom Cruise and the Mummy. Um, that that's a fascinating. I mean, I don't know how you screw up. Well, I kind of understand how you screw it up because like the old Universal Horror movies, like they're not like intri- intricately connected the way they were. Yeah. Like they were constantly recasting actors, and like Bela Lugosi played like, you know. Yeah, he, he played the monster. He played <laughs> Igor. Like, did he play the creator of Frankenstein's monster at one point? Like, who knows? Like, yeah, yeah, I can't remember. Oh, I someone knows. Yeah, yeah, I don't think he played the doctor, but yeah, he he went through all throughout that series after turning down Frankenstein originally. Yeah, uh, but but those films are you know I think somewhat you know the same way horror films are today. Sort of like yeah, they're sort of afterthoughts. They have a built-in audience. We're not going to spend too much time <laughs> making sure they're loaded with talent or going in a good direction. You know, but mm. uh, yeah, I sort of fascinated by the way like a, a superhero movie in the 40s like well that's something cheap you do as a serial that little kids are going to watch <laughs> you know we're saving money for something that you know David L. Selznick is producing or whatever you know and uh, yeah. now so the opposite you know if you got a great relationship movie like that something you know you make you know as inexpensively as possible where you know the superhero films must all the money in the world must gravitate to them yeah, it's always fascinating when you talk to people who I like, grew up in like different generations like the movies that they actually idolize because I feel that like we always are drawn mostly to the films that we watched as a kid. So, yeah. like, you know, my mother's generation, that was, like, movie musicals and epics, like David Lean movies and Sound of Music and things like that. And that, to her, is, like, the idea, like, the perfect idea of what a movie should be. Yeah. And for me, it would be, like, because I'm not saying that these are the best films, but I'm saying I, when I grew up, you know, it was, like, action movies and, like, Star Wars and Harrison Ford films and Die Hard. Like, that, to me, is, like... That's sort of like the base level of what a great film is. I've I'll get right between you and say that for me it's the 1970s, right. and so like gritty, character driven, uh, Al Pacino, you know, Dog Day Afternoon or whatever. Like a lot of the, you know that that's a, a genre and a space that really like still sucks me in in that sort of gut kid level. You know, I would rather have grown up during that period to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you. Though those films are a little bit more respectable than some of the films that I watched yeah. as a kid. For, for me, it was the real excitement too of sort of multiculturalism uh, being born and and yeah. that. Uh, um, you know, I seeing these city films in which there was this whole uh, cavalcade of, you know, Yafed Kodo and, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, different sort of actors from across the spectrum sort of uh, being brought into them was, uh, 
you know, a, a sort of little magical moment. Sesame Street sort of being a multicultural moment too for me right. as a kid. Yeah, uh, you know, something different from that. To, you know, it was only like ten years before they, you know, weren't letting you know uh, Nat Cole have a TV show or whatever. You right. know, pretty profound change. But uh, but yeah, for, I could see for you know, I guess it was Die Hard. I, I always think of that as being a cornerstone action film of that era. Was that a cornerstone film for you? Oh yeah, I love Die Hard. Die Hard was like my favorite movie in the world, and even to this point, like yeah, I watched it in grad school, and like we had to study it in some kind of capacity but it's always fun I think Richard Brody wrote a piece recently he had never seen Die Hard you know Richard Brody he wrote yeah. for The New Yorker he wrote that amazing book on Godard which is like a complete you know retrospective of his work goes through every single film even the ones that no one like watches <laughs> like the 70s ones he watched all of them and anyway so he wrote a piece where he he'd never seen Die Hard because it just fell into some blind spot back in the day and he never caught around to it and he watched for the first time and his, his take on it was really interesting he didn't like it yeah. but like just like reading his like perspective of someone who didn't grow up with this and had never seen it before and having a complete outsider perspective on it is really fascinating yeah for someone especially like me who grew up watching die hard that being one of the first r-rated films i ever saw along with like robocop or something like yeah, that. to watch it now I, I kind of feel like it's an era when we've lost faith in society and societal uh institutions and like only one man could stop this from happening the yes. police are incompetent everything's incompetent but like one guy if he's really got his <laughs> game going he could stop a team of terrorists it's like the joseph campbell thing sort of born yeah. out of star wars where it's like but also you, sort of the me generation thing in a way that, that whole sort of the egotism of uh you know uh, it's a single man is the only one you know with the, with the values to get things done yeah that reagan era obsession with um there's a book <laughs> called hard bodies which is all about like the reagan era obsession session with like super bulky men like Schwarzenegger and Stallone when he was really super ripped yeah, yeah. I mean uh, Bruce Willis is not like that level of ripped but like he spends most of the movie walking and like you know uh, I don't know I don't to call it wife beater but you know yeah yeah you know, like he, he's, his muscles are exposed for the entire movie he's walking around barely clothed so um, I know it, it, even action figures bulked up over the years when they talk about what the you know size of G.I. Joe's bicep was from 1970 <laughs> to 1965 to, to you know 85 where you know he's beyond any, any human dimensions you know he's just naturally this yeah you know incredible Hulk <laughs> the incredible Hulk fascinating with the incredible Hulk I mean that's yeah. another bodybuilder fascination that Schwarzenegger's very... rise Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I am not exactly sure how that all came about apart from just like being basically about, you know, consumerism and individualism and isolationism. Yeah. All that rise that comes through the 80s. But yeah, Die Hard is very much about even even the feminist backlash in there somewhere, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like the, the <laughs> Die Hard is very much about the feminist backlash. Like yeah. the Bonnie Bedelia character, like she's like changed her name, moved across the country to like start her own, you know, her own career away from her like blue collar husband who yeah. could never leave New York because that's the best. manners of a New York cop. Yeah, he's a New York cop. Could, <laughs> there's no way he could ever move to Los Angeles would not be the same. Especially yeah. Los Angeles is a cesspool in the '80s. It's going to become worse in the '90s. I just know it. Liberalism. Yeah. The liberalism is too yeah. liberal. It's, it's, it's. I mean, it's a really fascinating film. I remember one time. This is one of my only celebrity stories I will tell. I because I, I interviewed a lot of celebrities. I was wondering where they were going to get to that. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't want to be. I'm not going to get into like name dropping constantly because I, I do that enough and it's always obnoxious and I feel okay. nothing but shame about it. But I interviewed Alan Rickman one time in person, um, R.I.P. Uh-huh. And uh, it was for he, he directed a movie like a costume period piece with Kate Winslet. Can't remember the name of it. But yeah. so I, I I talked to him and at the very end I had just watched Die Hard in grad school <laughs> as you do. And uh, I, I'm just like, oh, Mr. Rickman, I, I we just studied uh, Die Hard in school, in grad school. And he's like, well, has a lot to answer for. <laughs> 
Like, I don't think he liked that movie very yeah. much. I think he enjoyed the role because we actually did, talked a little bit about Hans Gruber because like, we were. Whenever you talk to an actor who's played a lot of villains, and Alan Rickman actually hasn't played that many villains, uh-huh. um, more you know, because his villainous roles are his most famous. And yeah, Robin Hood is also a you know major one. And Snape is not really a villain; it uh-huh. just seems like a villain for the first like six <laughs> films or whatever. But you know, like most, like he you know goes off in the line about how like there's no villains, there's only people, and he had his description of Hans Gruber is just like to me, he is a very intelligent, driven man who has a plan and he unfortunately fails. <laughs> Which is a great way of talking about Hans Gruber, one of the greatest villains in screen history, I think. I still want to drag you through your career before we end up out of here. <laughs> There's so many tangents. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> so you how did how many years were you with the Metro? Uh, four and a half. Were you still going to school when you were working for them? Yeah. So the funny thing is, like, I got to grad school, and like the first semester, I did not have. I was working for the Philly Weekly. <laughs> this is like we started this conversation 20 minutes ago. I just realized. <laughs> but so anyway, the first semester, I was like working for the Philly Weekly, and I lost some of like the the job, like some of my steady pay I was going to only get like a very meager amount and this was like my main source of income at that point because it's really difficult to find a job and I'm in grad school and yeah. stuff like and I, I went on Twitter and I was like hi I need more work and then like literally five minutes later my friend who was like then working at the Metro who was like, like she was like the features editor or whatever mm-hmm. she was one of the honchos there she was like oh well a film position just opened up do you think you can do it while doing grad school and I just like jumped at the opportunity and the first semester was absolutely awful because it was I was taking three courses yeah. and then the metro job was like more than full time yeah. and then you know there's like the Tribeca Film Festival starts up in the spring and then <laughs> you have to watch a hundred films for that and then you have to like work on like thesis papers for the end of the semester and I was just like not sleeping going completely nuts for about three months and at the end I think I just slept a lot um but you know so, and from there on out I was taking like one class a semester and I wound up dragging out a program that you can complete in a year if you just speed through it I wound up doing it in three years yeah well and that's not so bad I mean you're working uh, you know you're working within the field while you're doing it yes it was very weird to be like covering like mainstream movies and I, a lot of our house as well and then like going to you know like deep dive in academia and like <laughs> the classes on avant-garde sound and image and things like that and then like shift gears and write about comic book movies or something like that uh-huh. it's very surreal sometimes i feel like you must have seen every marvel film over the last five years at least um except for thor ragnarok which is funnily enough because you know i i'm no longer at the metro uh i was no longer at the metro right in time for thor 3 to come out and it was one i actually sort of wanted to see because it's like directed by taika watiti and i'm like i'm all about the marvels that are unusual and they have like you can that portray an actual personality behind the lens yeah, yeah and like you get that with like ant-man and uh, guardians of the galaxy i feel those ones have like real personality to them outlier favorite for me punisher warzone oh i've never seen that one yeah it's a russian woman director who did it yeah yeah she's big on twitter she writes a lot about feminist issues and she calls out a lot of men and calls yeah. it the sexism the systemic uh systematic Systemic, and she says that, and she says that that uh, Pound Pressburger are a big influence on her use of color in that film. Oh, interesting. I mean, I'll have to actually watch this one. <laughs> if it looks remotely like Jack Hardiff, that that sounds amazing to me. You've seen most of the uh, the Marvel. Uh, 
how did you approach that as a writer to, to write about those films? Because like you said, you're writing about all these, you know, highbrow, theoretical, experimental, art house <laughs> films. At the same time, you're writing about things that are being made because there's a lot of money to be made making them. And that is the 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 genesis and it doesn't have to define how the quality of the film is necessarily but they they come from very different places yes of course i mean it's a, it was always a struggle because i think it's really easy especially if like i'm someone who believes in you know the diversity of of art and in the cinematic landscape and i'm increasingly irritated by the homogenous increasing homogeneity that's not a word but it's, it's coming increasingly homogenous yeah everything's kind of becoming the same it's all franchises it's all like cinematic universes and continuing stories i like movies that are 90 minutes and have an ending and don't have to have sequels those are great <laughs> i mean i'm into like continuing stories but if that's all you get anyway so i'm sounding really cynical so you have like the cynical side of it but then you also have the side where you actually want to like get people to think critically about things not just in terms of like this is bad automatically because it's a big budget art or comic book film but trying to find the actual like intelligence and, and the art and the craft that's going into these films because i feel like you know, the Marvel films are now sort of like, you know, kind of like a bad word among like the intelligentsia. But I feel that there are actually like some things worth celebrating about them. I, I don't get really crazy about them. I don't really love almost any of the comic book movies, but I think generally I'm pretty much okay with them. Um, they're a little, sometimes they're monotonous and interchangeable and I forget who which villain was in <laughs> Thor 2 The Dark World or which one was in Iron Man 3 or, or which whatever. one's coming up in the next film that we've seen a glimpse of yeah exactly I mean also because like most of the Marvel films have very bad very poor very forgettable villains apart from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 which has Kurt Russell and it's mostly because <laughs> it's Kurt Russell and Kurt Russell's such a movie star, like an old-fashioned movie star. I, I was thinking of Wolverine, uh, one of the, the Wolverine origins, the Marvel origins. Oh, God, right. That Wolverine. One. Bad film. But but uh, looking at like Hugh Jackman and um, the cast in it, I'm like, man, if they were doing Ibsen, this, yeah. they, they got the cast together to do Ibsen. They just don't have the material. <laughs> but <laughs> Liev Schreiber? Is like, Liev Schreiber. That's yeah, he's like the of. villain in Wolverine, which is a garbage film. I mean, they, also, these films get great actors, and like yeah. they go on, and the good thing is that they make all this money, and they get all this notoriety, and then like they can go do like a smaller film and then people will actually some people will actually pay attention to them yeah. like one of the things I would do at Metro is that like um, you know I would justify covering like a small independent film because it was like well there's like you know Marvel actor isn't it and then like people love Marvel actors so we can yeah. and you know I can get like a major star I probably wouldn't get them for a one on one interview if it was just for some Marvel film okay. but you can get them for like a smaller film and be like Hey, I got Mark Ruffalo. He's the Incredible Hulk, and he's going to talk about this small film. So it's like all of a sudden I got this like small film in like the subway paper. Yeah, I mean there was there was pretty broad coverage in the uh, in the metro. I didn't I didn't think of it as something that was just concentrated on commercial cinema. It, it yeah. seemed there you you did get in a lot of uh, other uh, material. You were the actual the editor for the, for the entertainment pages, right? Just the film section. Um, the film we had section. different editors for different things. I think when I started, they're like, "Oh, you should do TV as well. Oh, and tech. Can you also do tech? <laughs> Don't know anything about tech. Okay, but yeah, I think. And then I they kind of realized that I had no idea what I was doing with TV because you cannot. I don't. I don't think you can cover TV and film unless you're Matt Sauer Sites. Yeah, Matt yeah. Sites is like a hero. Like yeah, I, at this point, he's so stretched out over so many different platforms as well. You yeah. know, I don't know. I don't know how he does it. And I've asked him. I'm like, how do you do this? And I, even I, I'm, not, I'm not. I don't even know how he does it. Still, it's amazing. But he's made, he's always managed to like cover TV and film, and that's a great way to make a living in this industry. And he does it so well. And he was talking about TV, you know, intelligently before anybody 
cared about television as a serious art form because right now it's like a more uh, admired medium than, than movies and rightly so because a lot of mainstream movies are just not even remotely touching the quality of really good television well, let's talk about that for a second because okay. it's interesting i got into a whole conversation with with travis crawford who's the uh you know has a, a very specific taste in sort of challenging art house yes, cinema yes. and we, we got through the whole thing and we we touched on tv like we just dismissed it in, in a sentence i think <laughs> we discussed it. like wow neither of us are talking about tv and like no not at all um <laughs> And uh, but I, I it certainly seems like the the energy has gone to TV in a lot of ways and the economic energy. Yeah. But but the one thing that I, I, I really that stops me from embracing this revolution the way I think a lot of people have is that I feel like TV is still meant to appeal to sort of a million eyes at once, and that that uh, there's there's certain economic decisions that are made. Uh, in television, and we were, uh, my son is a big Walking Dead fan, and as we're watching The Walking Dead, I'm like, there, there's too, there's too many well paid actors in this at this point. They're gonna somebody some people are gonna have to get killed because this is getting a budget that we, a television show wouldn't won't won't support. And expensive. sure enough, you know, a couple couple of people for whose names are in the credits, you know, get get lopped off to to keep it TV sized in a way. That's amazing. It's, so for me, like it, it has a lot of sort of you know economic limitations that uh, film. Films can seem more sort of expansive in that sort of way. Yeah, sure. I mean, I don't. I mean, I'm going to grossly generalize at this point, but I mean, one reason I, I like television generally, but I don't really watch a lot of it, and because I still really like movies, and I still think there are enough really good movies being made. They're just not being made by Hollywood. They're being made by like, well, Netflix now is actually yeah, making yeah. movies, and Amazon is buying up and like producing really good movies yeah. and they're actually getting some, and in the case of Amazon actually putting them in theaters, which is kind of amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, For me, I feel like I, I, my attention's really uh, been drawn to, uh, to foreign film a lot more. And, oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean like the old masters, I'm saying like the, the people who, who have films in New York film festival every year, all from all around the globe. It's like yeah. New York film festival at this point, is just like, what's this guy up to this year? Okay. He has a film. Yeah. Here's, here's a slot. And, that, and that's always great to catch up with those guys because those films are always really exciting. Yeah, Kikor's Maki still has a film at the festival. Or, you know, <laughs> the new uh, one's really good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, but, it, but it does feel like, the, you know, that, uh, that Hollywood really has, uh, you know, let something, you know, shrivel uh, at, the, at the roots of, of, of the system. Yeah, but I mean, like, the so-called, like, serious filmmaking, like adult movies for adults, they don't exist anymore. They're all on television. But I feel like I don't really, like, with movies, I don't really feel like that, like, the adult serious movies are not really what I'm really drawn to it for. It's not really, like, the storylines or the acting. I think it's something bigger and, and stranger than that. I mean, I'm attracted to, like, lowbrow and highbrow. So yeah. I feel like uh, this is going to be incredibly generalizing, but I feel like the middlebrow has wound up going over to television. And that's always been a part of, like, movies that I'm never really that into. Yeah. Like, I'm not really, I mean, I, I like great acting. I like great stories. I like great... Uh, complicated characters those are great but that's not really why i love movies I and mean, there's something deeper and uh, about movies that yeah. i really like i think it's something about a vibe or like capturing some kind of like a, you know a place or a location or a city or something like that or colors and shot selection and things like that and that's not really going over to like television there are of course very well directed television shows yeah especially i think the auteur driven television has been great twin peaks was incredible yeah if that's like an 18 hour movie or a tv show like whatever it is i don't know if i'd say that was representative of any trend no 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 no. that was great (laughs) one of the reasons i love twin Peaks is because it went against all the rules of like golden age new golden age of television you know you know what constitutes great television yeah. in this age it like defied all of that 
in a great way. Yeah, I, 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 it might be Brett Easton Ellis who was talking about this, that that uh, television is, is a slave to narrative. You need more narrative and more information. Yeah, and yeah. Go into another place and more Stories characters are talking. Stories that never end. Like, yeah. I love, yeah. I love but, endings. But atmosphere is gone. You know, atmosphere, they're, they're you know, producer-driven, and they never seem to be, you know, uh, as, as rich with that sort of visual atmosphere and visual, you know, Visual daring, maybe. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's there. It's just super rare. I think like when Steven Soderbergh, The Nick, is like a really exciting film to watch, a show to watch because, like, especially knowing how he made it, he made he was shooting like you know episodes really really quickly, and he was doing it like almost guerrilla style while doing a period show, and he was like making up the shots as he was going along, and they're all really economical, and he's like, he's all about like how few shots can I use to like bang out the scene and, and make it very visually interesting. Mm-hmm. And it's like just a, a pleasure to watch him work every single episode of those two seasons. So, but he's been able to bring that prestige and bring that power, I guess, from having a long film career in which he's you know made his reputation. On. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and going back to John Huston, John Huston is someone that Soderbergh always idolized, and he's uh, someone who like crosses genres and is always experimenting yeah. with the form, and you know, in a way that isn't. He's not a really personal filmmaker. I still don't even know all of his like real obsessions but he just likes finding different ways he's like a craftsman yeah. he likes to find different ways to film and edit things together and he's you know embracing all this technology you know the story about like when he made logan lucky he was actually editing as he was going along and he had like the first cut of the movie a week after they completed the like, rap <laughs> shooting that's insane i don't think there's ever been a film like that before and it's really, really well made. So there's something about him, and I think that is sort of that that, that personality behind his films. Uh, I like many of his films, and I don't dislike him personally. But there's something about him I just don't like. Was <laughs> it just his like cold, kind of clinical error? About I, mean, him? I think it is the the absence of of, of having sort of a, a a driving force that's sort of at the center of him. And I, I like a lot of his films uh, a lot. I like uh, you know. I, yeah. I, uh, uh, but there's something about him that. Uh, I, I can't embrace him in some sort of why well, don't maybe you know well, I don't know why I need to but somehow personally I, I, I wouldn't hug him if I saw him. I well I, <laughs> I saw him one time and I was like genuinely starstruck and yeah. he made a joke to me and I had the opportunity to lob back a joke and I froze up and I think walked away <laughs> after mumbling something like I was genuinely because he's but he's a, he seems like a fun person yeah I mean like, like I said I have no negative feelings about him but for somehow like you know there's something missing about uh, there's an element of him that's missing in, in his films if I found out he was completely like uh, you know suffering from uh, you know the, on, on the on the level of autism spectrum you know I kind of feel, <laughs> feel like you know, there's a personality that, that, that I, I miss behind him but you know, I understand I understand that I, 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 I actually kind of like that about him I know yeah. that's a really weird thing to but think it's, it's but somehow defining him in some way yeah I, I admire like the kind of craft thing I mean I even feel this is I am not comparing me and Soderbergh in any way it's going to sound like I am but I the thing about him I admire which is that he's always kind of like forward thinking and trying to like work on his craft and like not refine uh, going towards like a specific goal but always just like refining it in the moment if this yeah. makes any sense like he's always kind of evolving and always adapting and he's not sure where he's going to go but he always needs to experiment with something and I felt like I always feel that with like my film writing or just yeah. my writing in general. I'm trying always... to keep it fresh and try to rethink it. Yeah, yeah, because I I get really bored with if I if I feel like I'm sort of just like phoning it in or if I'm just like feel, uh, if like reviewing feels like almost like filling out a form. Like even just yeah. like here's where the plot description goes. Here's where the critique happens. I always try to like dice like change it up a lot. Let's and, talk about... Oh no, and just just like play with the form. Even if like no one is even gonna pay attention to like all like the you know. 
care that's gone into it and the experiments I'm trying to do. It always is just like a way to keep me sort of interested. Right, engaged, yeah. And then Soderbergh is, is a lot like that. Yeah. So. I mean, as you know, my, my beefs against Quentin Tarantino sort of, you know, repeating himself and, you know, doing the Tarantino thing, which could be, you know, a few different things. But, right, but right. I can't I can't imagine thinking the same way. Like, you know, he's just doing the Soderbergh thing there. <laughs> you know, there is no Soderbergh thing to capitalize on in that sort of way. I mean, he's sort of an enigma as a person. I mean, maybe not that much, but I think when you read interviews with him, he's really fascinating because, like, he thinks about, yeah. he, he talks about, like, when he's when he's making films, it's not about like how it connects with an audience. Even if he's sometimes making actually like populist films like Logan Lucky, which no one saw mysteriously, I have no idea why that bombed. Yeah. Um, but you know, he's always talking about oh, it's the process. The process is what's re- rewarding to him. Yeah. Like thinking through like shot selections and editing, and how you, how do you problem solve all these other technical issues that people don't even think about, like. You know, how do you get like the cast? How do you how do you work with the actors? How do you get like this location? He just loves like actually working. Like he just loves the act of working almost more than the final product. Like yeah. almost like once it's done, it's like I guess I guess we're just moving on. My suspicion but, is Schizopolis is his most personal film. Probably. And I love Schizopolis. <laughs> I was a very early adopter of that and was happy to see. I guess some people know what it is. But, I mean, I, I love that whole period. Uh, when Kafka Soderberg, was around the same time. Yeah, well, yeah, but he was still like kind of working in Hollywood at that point. That was yeah. his splash. That's a fascinating. I don't want to say a failure, and I haven't. I think he like recut it or something like that. But, okay. but I mean, that was a, that's he's a fascinating career. But when he drops out of Hollywood after like '95, he makes the underneath, and he felt like sort of burned out after that, and he like, had to like just strip his career down and start anew. And you know he drops out of Hollywood and he makes like Schizopolis and he makes um, Spalding, the Spalding Gray movie he made, yeah. and one other one. I'm forgetting it's a terrible story. <laughs> he had to drop out of and become like an actual independent filmmaker and start actually from scratch and build himself back up. And then he comes back with like Out of Sight, yeah. which is I still think his best movie. Yeah, there's something immensely uh, engaging about that film. That's so it good. Really all comes together. Great, great performance by Jennifer Lopez. Oh. Forgotten as an actress these days. I mean, when that movie came out, I was just like, I hope that Jennifer Lawrence, Jennifer Lopez becomes like <laughs> the biggest actress in the world. And then you know you get that wish in a way that you would never really be happy about. She's never been that good in a movie before. No, no. And she's great in it. And then that, and then that movie again is like sort of cold too because it's not a really personal film. But the way he, it's personal in the way that he has, the way he's envisioned it, because it's a very, his experiments with colors, experiments with structure. Yeah. Um, it has like a deep, melancholic, romantic underpinning. And then Elmer yeah, Leonard always has that great detail and character where they, they come to life if you can, you know, yeah. blow a little air in their direction. I mean, it's part a Soderbergh film, and part of Elmer Leonard film, and part a Scott Frank, the guy, the screenwriter film. But I feel that like, Every shot has been like thought about when you're watching that film. It really kind of holds you and it, it really kind of like confounds you and, and moves in a very interesting way. There's really no film like it, and it's really difficult to explain why it's so great because it doesn't have a lot of like the typical things that we associate with like great films. It's not like a great statement on like the human condition or yeah. something like that. And it's an Elmore Leonard movie, so it has a plot that's like sort of like secondary of, of importance to yeah, like yeah. what's going on at every moment, but it's such an alive film to watch. That I find it thrilling. One of the few films I loved back when I saw it when I was like an undergrad, and yeah. to this day still love it, maybe even more so than I did back then. Yeah. First dating my wife, I think we went to go see that at a little off the beaten track theater in San Francisco. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, where the where the fog would you know, roll in at night <laughs> down by the ocean. It was a, a good time.
maybe we can bring this back to you know how things went to the uh, at the metro i think as the changing dynamics of uh, journalism continue how did they end up uh, parting ways with you who seemed to be a perfect fit for what, what they were doing and who their audience was and uh, you know one of the smartest film writers uh, around who had had a you know near daily uh, uh, connection with the with the uh, audience. Well, I can't really go into specifics about. Yeah, that for there's only so much reasons. you can say. But I mean, it was just like, it was like a, it's like a changing culture that's going on in like the the business just in general. And I mean, they wound up eliminating my position and creating something that's like different from what I was actually doing. Yeah. So that's, I think that's pretty much all I can say. Um, and it was it was fine, but it was like I mean, the whole culture is, is changing and evolving in a way that is is very strange, even to me. And I've like kind of evolved along with um, the industry as it's gone along. But like right now, it's like it's in a very very strange place that I don't fully understand just yet. Uh-huh. I mean, a lot of it, and I, some of it, I don't actually want to be a part of it because a lot of it's like. I don't know, like right now, a lot of like journalism, everybody's like kind of writing the same things because everybody needs like to have that big clickbait thing that people are always getting what everybody's talking about. Yeah. And eventually we're all going to basically be saying the same thing. So, uh, boy, if there's not 100%, if, if something gets close to 100% and doesn't make 100% on Rotten Tomatoes, that's all. A lot of people get their feathers ruffled about that. That's all terrible. But I mean, even sometimes, I mean, even the reviews, we have to like, you know, talk about the exact same things. It has to be the same focus. The headlines have to be very similar. It's like, and I, I, I always kind of like like going off in my own direction. And especially I love like focusing on like history and stuff like that. And like films that no one really talks about. That's my big thing. I don't really, I mean, it's, it, it is fun to actually be in the thick of it for like every new movie that's coming out. And not just like the mainstream ones, but like the art house. It's exhausting because uh, I did it for four and a half years. And yeah. I can tell you I didn't sleep very well and I was always stressed out um i wouldn't but it is like sort of like fun to actually see what uh, the, watch film culture as it's happening as it's as it's existing as the, the new films are coming out when they're coming out yeah, yeah um but it's nice to also take a break from that which is like kind of what i've been doing and just like kind of watching whatever i want to yeah. it's funny because like um you know people kind of assumed like my friends were just like oh you're just not going to watch movies for like a month <laughs> and i wound up doing almost the opposite i probably watched more movies than i did when i was working i was watching a lot of movies but i was watching only films i wanted to see i didn't see a bad movie for like a month and uh, as it turns out i like movies again yeah. <laughs> i had to remind myself because uh, what off the clock what movies have you, have you watched recently that have uh... well i i i, I, I rewatched the brisky point on 35 millimeter that was a lot of fun i have this like this book on jean Renoir that came out recently by pascal marichaud i believe is his name uh, it's a new comprehensive do- biography about 700 pages and um, when I picked it up I was just like oh but I haven't actually watched a lot of these films and even the ones I have seen I haven't seen in like 5, 10, 20 years so I've actually been very very slowly over months going through the book and when I get to the chapter on like you know Grand Illusion or Crime of Monsieur Lang I'll actually watch or rewatch these films um i'm at, i'm at the hollywood section right now <laughs> never seen any of those and i have to find copies of like swamp water and like yeah. uh the southerner and oh, i've seen my diary of a chambermaid with uh paulette goddard i've seen yeah. that before but i saw that like 20 years ago so that's been, it's been fun to do that i have a book on shoto jeet ray rye yeah. i've been i'm now mispronouncing it yeah i'd like to go back and rewatch a lot of those films and see the ones i haven't seen because his films are just so singular and beautiful and almost outside of time there's nothing quite like them and the yeah. spell that they conjure 
Yeah. Um, I mean, you really fear it. well, it's got to be the spirit of that man that, that is able to summon that film after film, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've seen a lot of the dramas. I want to see some of his, like, comedies. He did a musical, and, you know, I think he did a thriller. I mean, I don't know all these other sides of, of his work. So, yeah. I mean, he's he's so great. I mean, speaking of movies that, you know, our trilogy, the Yafu trilogy, is one of the greatest yeah. things I've ever seen in my life. I mean, revisiting that when they reissued it, I think, last year. Uh-huh. Wow, it was amazing. Yeah, they did a beautiful job restoring it. Even the, the version of the 90s was was a little uh, a little rough. I, I showed that. It was another film I showed to junior high school kids. And uh, yeah. we, had, we had to split it over two periods. And I got halfway through. And I was really unsure how the film was going over and stopped it. I'm like, yeah, you know, what, are you, what are your impressions? And the one girl said, she is so much like my mom. <laughs> <laughs> That's gave the time. list of all the annoying qualities the mother from Pat the Pash Alley had that were just like her mom. I mean, there's such vivid characters on top of everything yeah. else. I mean, it's a, it's a great story that you actually want to... It's quality television. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> television, <laughs> television wishes it could be the Apu trilogy. So, so uh, you, ha- you still uh, continue to write, though. I've seen your byline uh, since... Uh, it's only been a few months since the Metro has uh, had this parting of ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you had a, uh, I was very pleased to see you in the Village Voice. Uh, Me too. Soon afterwards, <laughs> yeah. That was, a, that was a... I don't want to say a lifelong dream, but I guess it was like yeah. the second half of my life dream when I realized... For me, Jay Hoverman. I was reading, uh, you know, Hoverman, and uh, was it, I think maybe Sarah still that point in the, in the yeah. village voice yeah oh yeah the, the whole thing yeah i mean yeah sarah yeah being a paper with saris and hoberman that's amazing yeah i mean they've they got two copies at the local uh newsstand at my little tiny south jersey hometown and uh, wow. i started buying them when i was like when i got my paper route when i was 14 i think and yeah you know the, they it was you know defining uh, nice to be part of that tradition uh, that history what did you what did you write about you wrote about uh, i wrote about frederick wiseman films which is a big pet obsession and that was someone who I, I, I'd watched his films before. I think uh, starting with, I want to say La Dance, which was like 2010, 2011, or 2009 maybe. Yeah. Uh, I'd seen every Wiseman the year it came out because he's like, you know, like Woody Allen, he usually has like one film a year. And there are like three-hour documentaries. The discipline. You know? The discipline. And also, I mean, once I started actually like diving back into his stuff, I had seen the, the film that was a turning point for me was um, uh, the museum film. Of course, I can't remember it. National Museum. Okay. Um, like seeing that, uh, that just blew me away. And I finally like got Frederick Wiseman, which is like, not just like, he's a great documentarian. He shows like institutions and he shows the difficulty of that, but just formally, I think he's one of the most exciting filmmakers because the way he structures the films, they're making really complex arguments and they're doing it completely tacitly. Like he doesn't tell you what to think and he doesn't tell you the things you should take away from it, but they're not open-ended and they're not like... They're not films where like it's like oh, you see what you want to see. Yeah. They're like more than that. You you have to find Frederick Wiseman's voice. His one quote he has is that like viewers he wants viewers to fight with the films. Yeah. So you have to like really engage with the films, and you have to like recognize that even if they're really long and really if the scenes are just like people in a town hall meeting talking for like twenty minutes, every inch of that film is there for a reason, and you have to like pay attention, find the thing that what what someone said that seemed really casual to them, maybe they didn't, they said it without thinking, why that jumped out at him and how that, you know, corresponds to the rest of the film. This might have been your piece even I read. I, I uh, taught a class on documentary filmmakers recently and we watched high school, mm. but somebody was saying the uh, the meeting is like what the gunfight is in a uh, John Wayne film. The meeting <laughs> is in a Frederick Wiseman film. That's a great way and, to put it. Uh, yeah. You know, but there is always a scene, it seems, where they all gather around the, the table and, uh, you know, you really see people's philosophy sort of spilled out. Yeah, they'll, they'll say things. 
things unthinkingly, unconsciously, and they'll reveal so much, and it will tie into something in the rest of the film. Um, you know, you can see that in like the I would say like the so-called, so-called negative films that he made, which are I think a lot of the early ones. Like High School is you know a negative portrayal of High School as a sort of like factory that just churns out people, yeah. like a failed, a factory that doesn't really work. Which yeah. is a lot of like a lot of his films are like Teddy Cut Follow. His first film is a expose, a muckraking documentary exposing real ills that are happening underneath society's noses. Yeah. And, you know, but then I think as he gets into the 80s, I don't want to say he softens, but he starts like focusing on like so-called positive places like schools for the blind and the deaf and the multi-handicapped. He has like a, a, a series of four films about this one school uh, down in Alabama, I want to say. And then he'll focus on like, you know, like uh, like La Comédie Française or like ballet companies. He loves ballet. He loves dance. So he'll go to like he has multiple films about ballet. Um, and these are institutions that are not bad. You can't find you can't find any yeah. fault with them, but you have to find like how it's difficult for them to actually exist. Central Park is like one of his best films because it combines something that's positive with something that's negative, which is like, you know, a park for a community for an entire city. But then, how does the city actually make this work? Yeah, and, and these films are so unassuming in a way, and yet I was really you know, th- thinking and discussing with the class, sort of like, you know, to have this sort of uh, information available. You know, if we had 40 films about the institutions of inst- of, of ancient Rome, like right. how much, you know, information would there be to, to, to glean from something like this? You know, yeah. he, he's, you know, one of the greatest filmmakers. It's easy to make a case for him because, you know, he really has documented a, a huge swath of reality in, in, our, in our world, you know. And at the same time, there's very little actual hard information. Like yeah. it's, I went to a screening of ballet, which he made in 1995, about the New York Ballet Company, a New York Ballet Company, if not the New York Ballet Company, and uh, they were showing in 16 millimeter, so they actually had to like do, like stop the film halfway through to do a real change because they only had one working projector. Oh, wow. And um, this guy stood up in the back of the theater, and he's just like, "It's like who are these people? There's no names on the screen. We don't know anybody." Who is-? <laughs> and everybody was just like, everybody was a seasoned Wiseman watcher. We all knew that was part of like it was intentional. It's part of what's great about the film because it's like. A democratizing of like people, like people who are famous or not famous, they are all the same, you're on the giving, same level. You're not telling who's important, you know? Yeah, and yeah. they're not exposition, they're not informational films. You're watching like very specific slithers of these institutions, and you're not learning much about them as you have to actually sometimes go out of your way and find out like what who these people are, what they do. There's no scene where people say, like, well, you know, with the comedy of La Francaise, as you know, has been around since the yeah. 17th century. No one does that. Like, it's stuff, if you get any information, it's just offhand in meetings or in discussions or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the great things. So, like, if people are going back and watching, you know, these films as informational, they're not going to get a whole lot, but they're going to get something deeper, which is like a sense of how people dealt with institutions and how like, they just don't really work yeah. and how difficult it is to, like, have, you know, how. Our society is always on the verge of crumbling. Like we're like American society is just held together by like scotch tape and bubble gum. It's always going to fall apart. Any I think moment. they've taken it's... off the scotch tape recently. <laughs> right, right. I think it's just it's, bubble gum at this just, point. Yeah, it's like bubble tape at this point. It's really bad bubble gum. It's not even working at all. So I mean, yeah, I mean, his films are never really like specifically timely. Like even like films that are about like his new films about you know it's ex libris and it's about the New York Public Library, and it's a very positive film. And there are parts in it that are like sort of like subtweets to like the Trump administration. Administration, yeah. but they're never really specifically timely. But they do feel a little timely now because they're all about you know things that are f- going to fall apart. Society's going to fall apart, and <laughs> now that we live in a time where it seems like that's going to happen, 
they seem a little bit more timely, but also at the same time reminding us that like it always seems that society is going to fall apart any second and it somehow never does. And we will always, even if it does sort of fall apart, we will always sort of like find a way to regroup in some capacity. And hopefully learn something from the experience. And learn something from the experience, hopefully, unless we don't, and we will still kind of perpetuate as a species <laughs> and a society. Who knows? So where can people find your writing these days? Or how can people keep <laughs> up with you these days? I'm At this point, I'm just sort of like a random freelancer. So like, who knows? You know, I, I've been writing a bit for like Uproxx or a piece for NBC.com. I wrote, yeah. uh, I worked for a week at Filmmaker Magazine. Um, so... I'm in the freelance game as it is right now. I never, I was lucky because I always had like kind of steady or staff positions. You know, with the Philly Weekly, it wasn't a staff position. I was only a freelancer, but I was like the guy they went to. So I always had like a steady, I'd steady work at all times and I was always working there. Do you have a Twitter account which you put all your links on? Yeah. At this point, there's not many links. But yes, I have a Twitter account, which is mostly bad jokes and stuff like that, or yeah. like random things, because I've been reading, Matt, uh, at Matt Prigé, M-A-T-T-P-R-I-G-G-E, excuse me. Um, so yeah, I'm sort of like still trying to figure out the freelance game, but also trying to figure out where I want to go next, because I mean, when I went to, the reason I moved to New York was not to get some fancy staff position at a newspaper, I was going for grad school, and I was going to disappear into academia, or become a programmer, curator archivist or something i have no idea i kind of want to explore different areas of our industry such that it is because there are a lot of jobs and people are constantly creating content and i really like specifically like history and old films and i would like to find some way to profit off of that (laughs) not profit so much as like make a living like living and communicating that to people in some kind of way so i don't know if it's going to be in writing or if it's going to be in something else i might move away from writing that would be nice I am going to be teaching a class at NYU, unless that falls apart last wow. second, which is Congrats. really weird. Do you know what on? Uh, it's like for freshmen, it's like history of film language, which is like people, you know, a lot of my friends who are not in the film, I have to explain to them long-windedly what film language actually means <laughs> as a definition that it's about. And that gives you some room to, to curate what you want in that, in that class, I imagine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think so. I haven't actually... <laughs> this is sort of like early news. I haven't actually even met with them to talk about like the specifics of curriculum and like what I'm expected to be doing. But uh, yeah. who knows? It's, it'll be kind of fun to light off in a different area of, of our crumbling, but actually not crumbling industry, just rapidly evolving in very strange ways. But yeah. um, I, I want to do writing, but I kind of want to do it like my way. I don't want to just sit there all the time like banging out clickbait pieces about like news that everybody else is reporting, which is like what a lot of places are doing right now. Yeah. Like you have to be like, oh, here's the news about you know the, the running time of the new Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi, 150 minutes, and there's like you know the internet is filled, clogged pieces about the same thing. I want to like write original things on original subjects in an original way. Great. Well, th- Matt, thank you so much for uh, coming out and talking to us. Here. Oh, sure. Thank you. For, uh, sorry for all the tangents. Yeah. Thanks. That's what, that's what I was <laughs> accounting on. Perfect. Great. <laughs> thanks again. Sure. That was fun. I was like dehydrating rapidly. Oh, the sorry. Of, yeah. Oh, the no, the no, Brit is empty. Hoovering huh? down your water. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three, four. That's it for today's show. Thanks to Matt for coming in for a conversation. You can keep up with Matt's writing through Twitter. As for me, you can check out my film class, 50 Years of Women Directors, at Fleischer this February. You can catch me spinning jazz and beyond at WPRB Princeton Monday from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., both over the air and at WPRB.com. And I hope you will return back soon for more 
London now. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.